Apparently not everyone was aware of the incessant march of progress. The next improvement should be more to your liking. I understand that scientists will soon make it possible for any object thrown at the television screen to actually hit the performer. All of which reminds me of a story. Welcome to the Shamley Silhouette, yet another analysis of the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. I am your host, Zach Eastman, and we're going to jump right into today's episode. Uh, we have a really special story for you. Uh, we have a story uh, of blackmail, of murder, and we, uh, we can't just tell it in normal dimensions. You can't just look at this in two dimensions. You have to go into a third dimension in order to uh, properly... Uh, tell the story that we are going to talk about, which is, of course, Alfred Hitchcock's Dial M for Murder, uh, the only 3D film that the Master of Suspense ever did uh, for Warner Brothers in 1954. It is a film that came at the tail end of the 3D craze in the 50s, and so as a result was mostly seen in its 2D form when it was first released. However, through a release in the 80s, uh, more people got to see the 3D effect and how powerful it could be. And thanks to the tech boom that 3D had, thanks to uh, some blue cats, we have been able to see a better print of this available readily for home video if, of course, you were lucky enough to get the 3D TVs uh, when they came out before they were uh, ceased in manufacturing. Um, here to discuss this is a return guest and a person who was able to jump on that bandwagon, <laughs> and uh, and rightfully so. Um, uh, we will talk a little about it because thanks to him, I've gotten to see this movie in its proper 3D format today, and we're going to be talking about this movie immediately after watching it, which has not happened on Shamley Silhouette yet. This is a first on the show, but uh, he is not a first on the show. He is a return guest. Please welcome Marshall Rosales. Hello. Oh, no. Another four hours. No. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> well, I will do my best. I'm jumping out the window. I promise. <laughs> no, 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 no. Thank you for coming back. Uh, the oh, last time you. you were here, um, it'll have been a couple weeks, um, although it won't feel like that for you. Uh, we were talking about Hitchcock failures. Yes. Um, this one is sort of in the middle. <laughs> like it's not. It's not. It's not. Te it's not a failure financially per se, but it's not. It's certainly not like the bigger success that he has in the fifties. Yeah, I, and I think that really, by and large, that has to do with the fact that it mostly was not seen in three D. I think this is a completely different experience watching this film in three D, and I'm really happy that my third appearance is <laughs> talking about three D. So yeah, which Rosales three D. Yeah, exactly. Part 3D. <laughs> Part 3D. Oh, my God. <laughs> that should be the title. Of the Part 3D. But before we jump directly into Hitchcock's, um, I, we talked about this on the uh, Shamley that you were on where we talked about the three failures, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, as we as I after we did our episode, I found some more that could easily create a part two. Like I'm just like looking at the actual returns. It's just like, oh, well, gotcha. what did this not hit with an audience? But it's not the same that we talked but we talked a little bit about the 3D technology afterward mm -hmm. because this is an interesting discussion in Hitchcock's career. 
he was always one to try out new technology, much like a George Lucas or a Steven Spielberg or a James Cameron. Um, but he was a he was a guy who would use old uh, new technology for old techniques. Yes, which is pretty interesting. So before we talk about him specifically, the 3D process, it's not something that just popped out of the 50s out of the middle of nowhere. This thing has been around way before it, but it didn't become a commercial potential until about the 50s, like in terms of like a mass, mass audience thing. Well, it's um, actually the first 3D film. I mean, actually, it, it's interesting. The origins of 3D in the 50s are almost exactly the same as what happened with Avatar mm. in terms of the first big 3D film that was made, and I've got the title here somewhere. Um, pardon me for not having that part of the article completely set. Um, Buona Devil. Yep, Buona Devil with Nigel Bruce, who is a Hitchcock regular. Uh, came out November 26th, 1952, mm-hmm. and that blew the box office up. Yep. And so from that standpoint, um, a lot of the studios wanted to jump on the 3D bandwagon because yeah. they saw it as a way that it's a gimmick and it's going to bring people to the theater. And I'm not sure that it that the theaters ran the same way that it did with Avatar where they could just tack $4 onto every ticket for the 3D glasses. That is one thing I didn't find um, in terms of like a set answer for it. Um, you're right, though. It's a way to get people back in because this is the period where television is taking its rise to uh, to dominance in terms of the dominant form of mass entertainment. Um Movies are still a popular form of entertainment to this day, mm-hmm. but we're in the middle of a second wave of this situation where television or streaming in this case is taking over. In the case of the 50s, you have the the dominance of television, which is a technology that had been developed earlier than the 50s, but that, that, um, that innovation was kind of halted during World War II and then kind of resumes in 1946 and then is perfected and then was able to mass market. But there was television before television was what we know television to be today, which is your network shows, your commercials, your cartoons, stuff like that. Right. So the the studios are scared shitless, and amongst others, people like Jack Warner are looking around going, like, what can we do to get them back into our theaters? And this is around the time also that they're going to have to deal with the fact that they won't have their own theaters soon because of (laughs) monopolies. But (laughs) Right, um, right. But so... so, so, 3D is one of the things they turn to in terms of having... Something to offer audiences that television doesn't. Yeah. Um, also, the same amount, you know, same same time span when we're seeing the expanding aspect ratios. Yes, exactly. You'll have Cinescope, Vistavision, Vistavision, a process that Hitchcock uses a lot in the fifties um, for the majority of his films. Yes. Um, so yeah, it's just a way to get people into that crowd, and um, and you have Buona Devil, and like uh, I mean, the way I got into three D initially as a concept, even before Avatar, was seeing a 2d print of house of wax and mm. uh, on dvd and it's very clear where the 3d is supposed to be right but but it was the dvd copy they didn't have a decent way to show the 3d because it would have been the anaglyph yeah um the, the is, red and blue yeah either either red and blue or sometimes you'll see it with it as a green or magenta yeah and you were talking a little bit about it um uh when we were kind of initially discussing the potential of this episode but you were talking about the actual technology. Like, there's a difference between there's anaglyph, which is the red and blue, the red and green, as mm-hmm. you were just discussing. But there's also the polarized um, lenses, which are the ones that we kind of utilize today. Which actually is true 3D. Back even Buona Devil was shot using um, a silver screen and two projectors set up mm-hmm. um, that were both throwing different wavelengths of light 
that the um, audience would be wearing polarized lenses just in a paper housing and not blue and red. Yeah. Um, the issue became that you actually needed two perfectly sunk projectors. Which is hard. Throwing the the two different uh, wavelengths. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess one was, yeah, one was two different wavelengths. One was through a lens, a polarized mm-hmm. lens. And then the lenses that you were wearing would kind of depolarize what right. was being bounced back at you from the screen. Um, so this was a very difficult technology to deal with both on set because it, um, and again, exactly the same way that we shoot 3D, that 3D is shot modern uh, in modern days in terms of where you have two different cameras that are either side by side or one of them is shooting into a lens so that you can deal with your um, the distance between the two yeah. um, lenses. That's exactly how it was shot, except back in the 50s, we didn't have little tiny mini Alexas and <laughs> red cameras. Ready. Yeah. So yeah. the the contraption was gigantic. It was very hard to move mm-hmm. um, and was very slow and big and loud and all of all of these things. So it was difficult in the production. And then when you get into the project, projection booth, it's also very difficult. So mm-hmm. most people who saw 3D in the 50s, it was not a fun experience because it was really difficult to get not only both of the projectors sunk so that they're throwing the same image, but also to have them perfectly focused in the same area. So just um, it uh, it was very headache-inducing, and it was very difficult to actually ever see a good print right or a good a good run of a film you have to have a master projectionist there and you have to make sure every everything everything's working on the same wavelength otherwise like one thing's out of place right whole thing's ruined and it has to be in perfectly in place also for all of the real changes Mm -hmm. not just it's you know it's not like just hitting two digital signals yeah and getting them in sunk at once so the answer to that was this anaglyph process, which only required one projector. Mm -hmm. And so you could have your, again, either blue or green images, um, or I'm sorry, blue or red or green or magenta. Um, They're different different schools of thought. And depending on how your eyes and brain are, sometimes blue or red will work better for you than green or magenta. but uh, that yeah, so that could happen all on one print, and they essentially were taking both of the three D images that were shot naturally for three D, mm-hmm. and then they were just throwing them either through a red filter or a blue filter to create that three D effect. But it, if you have ever seen that, you can tell it is very difficult yeah. to enjoy in really any way, shape, or form. So, but before <laughs> so before we even had the uh, invent of the perf- or the. I guess would be the clarification of the polarized process with something like Avatar. Um, the 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 closest 3D experience that you and I would have ever had would have either been, um, uh, would have probably been one of the later Freddy or uh, Fre- Freddy movies, which was Freddy's Dead: The Final Nightmare in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Or if you're like me, it's Spy Kids 3D Game Over, which uh, was <laughs> definitely a red and blue situation um and i remember the dvd even came with that and it taught you how to adjust your tv so that you could watch it in 3d on your tube tv interesting yeah very interesting i don't think it even 
friggin' worked to save anybody's life. But, um, <laughs> you know, whatever. I mean, the company that put that out is no longer in business. Um, for, so I, they didn't even know what they were talking about to begin with. Right. Um, but, you know, the technology in terms of its showing in the 50s is not too dissimilar from how they were trying to get sound to work in the early days of sound. Sound was a situation they're trying to figure out, like, well, we... They they had been working on the idea for the sound on film process, mm-hmm. but they hadn't perfected it yet. So at the at the time, it was well sound on disc. Vitaphone was the answer to that, but creating a perfect sync was difficult. So there wasn't always a guarantee that it was going to work until Sam Warner and his company kind of helped perfect it by buying out Vitaphone and then presenting the jazz singer as such. But yes. even so, it took a long time to get other theaters wired for sound. That caused a sensation. 3D did not. 3D goes out the door. Well, it was because it was so it was really difficult to ever see it done well. Yeah. Um and also the same thing that we saw happen immediately after Avatar hit was because everyone was jumping on the 3D bandwagon, they didn't necessarily know how to shoot with 3D and they were resting their um a lot of the creative energy into let's make it 3D and that will be fun for the audience as opposed to let's tell a story that is going to be enhanced with the 3D Mm -hmm. and let's cater our film to the fact that we now have this other way or enhanced way of viewing it. And so the experience wasn't that great, much like going to see like Clash of the Titans or Alice in Wonderland Mm -hmm. in 3D Mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, let's hurry up and let's do this and let's forget about the fact that this is visual storytelling and these two things should complement each other. Right. And it's, um, it's funny because like, I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of avatar as a film itself or whatever, but undeniably when we saw it in 3d, it was high popping to say the least. Oh yeah. And I, I didn't even realize what I was saying when avatar was when I, after I finished watching it the first time in the theater in 3d and I just kind of like, shrugged my shoulders and I was like I don't know why you would ever watch that in any other way than 3D yeah and I was I was trying to play a compliment to the 3D and I didn't realize that I was also making a yeah, comment well, on it's, it yeah it's the backhanded but that doesn't <laughs> yes. always like sometimes it doesn't always come through sometimes you say something and you're just like oh I said the quiet part loud and the loud part quiet <laughs> right right <laughs> but um but yeah no in and also with 3D in addition to the inability to perfect it at that time in the 50s or to show it properly and resorting to anaglyph you have cinemascope coming around so cinemascope is kind of like a cheaper solution to it you're not dealing with multiple cameras you're not dealing with a bunch of interference whereas cinemascope is a process where it's a matter of finding different ways to process film like in the case of uh, a vista vision it's a wider it's a wider piece um and in the case of other films sometimes it's a matter of just reverse or flipping the way that the 35 millimeter film is processing so instead of up and down it's going side to side and then that can create your larger effect so it's just making wider strips of film um but uh so 3d kind of just dies yeah like it just dies and to to kind of bring this into um dial m mm-hmm. interestingly enough i found some notes about the original press screening mm-hmm. for this film the projectors were out of sync oh. they stopped the movie halfway through motherfucker <laughs> and then just the second half of the film was played in 2D <laughs> so all of the initial like just that that first wave of impression on the film yeah. was no one even they didn't get to see it in 3D. Yeah. It was just like, oh, the 3D doesn't work, and so now here's the 2D. So now it's just a regular Hitchcock movie. Yeah. I mean, 
And so that's why most people didn't see it in 3D in, in the 50s because it was just so difficult. To, and, at, and at that to... point, you're at a premiere, like you're at a press screening. I'm sure that the studio head might have been even been there or a representative. So I'm just imagining Hitchcock sits there and he just turns and he just looks and goes, ask Jack if it was fucking worth it. Can you ask him if it was fucking worth it? <laughs> well, apparently there I mean, it are, was, yeah. Yeah, and, and there are actually, you know, on, on that note, there are conflicting reports of how on board with the 3D process Hitch was. Um, yeah. There are some things that say that this was a, a total studio forced hand mm -hmm. of like, sorry, Hitch, you're making this because it's going to make us a bunch of money and it's the fad. Um, but there are other reports um, that actually four months prior to production, it was a, like it was the movie was planned to be 3D right. from the beginning. Yeah, which I would say it might be a compromise of the two. I mean, you, when you're dealing with the technology on hand, I would have to assume that there's going to be frustrations with it down the line because there's if they're using the two camera process the way you would have to use it up to a certain point with Avatar where it's a little bit more refined and a little bit easy, a little more compact. Um, and in the case of like, I mean, if you read stories about the production of Friday the 13th Part 3D, they, they, their ca that camera was a nightmare for them, the yes. entire shoot. Absolutely. Um, so I'd have to imagine there's issues with Hitchcock um, dealing with this camera. Um, but yeah, it, I mean, the, the general implication on a behind-the-scenes feature right, is that this is a studio-forced hand situation and that Hitchcock makes the best of it. But then he also talks about you know, how he creates this film and is able to use that technology. So there's, there's a, as you said, two different schools on this thought. Yeah. And I, I, I really have to lean a little bit more on the, this was a planned thing. And mm -hmm. I think that a, a project that from day one Hitchcock knew was going to be in 3d. Yeah. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that he, he very purposefully picked a stage play. Yep. And also very purposefully picked to not try to adapt it beyond the confines of a stage play, right? Um, in the way that one might normally do with a film, yeah. um, you know, with a, with a, a stage play adaptation into a film, um, and knowing that he could rest on playing with that three D landscape mm. in just one apartment for essentially an entire film. It's well, and it's a situation like as I was watching it in three D with you today, I was just like, rope would be interesting in 3d really interesting in 3d and that's a situation where i don't want obviously i don't want them to do it because conversion into 3d is a tricky situation it you 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 take a gamble with it like jurassic park's the only one i've seen that even comes close to looking like it's worth the risk i'll i'll, I'll show you the best 3d conversion i've ever seen when we're done with this okay nice um, <laughs> but but yeah and, I, and it's i i i would have to imagine that a, a man like hitchcock who is more than which more is than Pacific Rim, by the way. Pacific, Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim. I saw it in 3D when it came to the theater. Yeah, it's it's it was fun. It's perfect. It was lots of fun. <laughs> um, but no, Hitchcock is uh his situation like he if he's willing to use this newer technology to tell older stories, it makes sense. And a play like Dial M for Murder, which is a celebrated stage play, it, it's something that you know he can use the technology to tell it artfully, and not necessarily using it as a gimmick. There are exceptions in certain parts of this film, but they never feel like a gimmick. It it always hands it's hand in hand with Hitchcock's meticulous detail, um, which is funny because after this he does Rear Window um, in the same. It's released in the same year. It's fifty four, mm -hmm. so he ha he shoots this film in fifty three, comes out in fifty four. Rear Window comes out the same year. Both deal with singular locations, 
for the most part. And both of them deal with a murder plot from a different point of view. In the case of Dial-In for Murder, we're dealing with us, us, the audience, being more or less the, the uh, peeping Toms in this situation. And he shoots that intentionally. The way that camera is placed is directly set up to make us an accomplice in this movie. Yes. Um, and um, obviously that's for the 3D effect. But also the detail, everything is set up like if you were to convert, I mean, not, not that it would work. But if you were to convert certain shots of a Hitchcock film the way he intentionally has inserts or characters doing things with their hands, it's the same thing. And we see that done to the best effect in near the end of this movie. So here's a fascinating thing I found out about this film is that that was discovered. What you're talking about, all of those low angle shots mm-hmm. and the the sort of way to capture this story utilizing that 3D landscape is a thing that was discovered on set in the middle of shooting mm. that they had done, um, from what I understand, actually several days of shooting. And were going back and looking at the dailies and looking at the reels and were, everyone was just disgusted with the, with what they were saying. They were mm-hmm. just like, it just, it looks really flat and it looks, it, um, it is almost disorienting in the way that they were shooting. Mm-hmm. And so they actually went back and reshot a lot of the film and that's when they were having to they were digging holes up in the stage yep. so they could drop the camera below the floor line. Ooh, oh yeah. Um but that a lot of that stuff was done in a learning process of having shot a portion of the film not doing that. Yeah. And and, and there's a there's particular shots during the first 30 minutes of this film that at first I was just like, man, it's it, it this would be an insult to Hitchcock, but it's like it's almost like Orson Welles is directing this movie because there's a lot of stuff coming from below, mm-hmm. which is like it's not that Hitchcock wouldn't do that. But the way it's angled, I was just like this feels like Citizen Kane a little bit here for a second mm-hmm. on a visual spectrum. And yeah, that, and that would solve those issues and also kind of find a way to create interesting things because we'll get into it when we get into the plot. But the moments where things are sticking in your face, which I think is the common um, uh, belief w- of what 3D is. Like, mm-hmm. I know when Harold and Kumar 3D came out, that's why <laughs> I went. I wanted to see weed smoke blow in my face. And I saw it, Marshall, and it was fine. Um, <laughs> or Jackass 3D. I won't talk about that right now. It's um, the best. It's, it's one of the best mo- 3D movies ever made. <laughs> we just won't talk about it right now. <laughs> um, th- that's for another podcast. But, I mean, and we'll jump, we'll jump into the plot here in just a second, but I wanted to ask from, like, a technical perspective, because... This is I I fully believe this is your episode at this point because this is the one where the tech really does take over in a way it hasn't on this show. But it's important for our audience and also for myself even to learn from this because this is an example of how technologies that become fads to a certain extent, like what happens when they overstay their welcome, but why are they worth keeping around and revitalizing every so often? Yes. In the, in the case of 3D... Um, I'll tell you the one that I feel is the most best recent example of it within our lifetime is Hugo mm. is Martin Scorsese's Hugo. Yes. Um, and that doesn't just stem from the fact that I think that, uh, that movie is cinema, but <laughs> cause it doesn't have a superhero in it as far as I'm uh, aware of, I, I'm pretty sure that Sasha Baron Cohen's not Iron Man in that movie, <laughs> right. but it's more just how he's using the space of that train station. And, uh, to an extent, the, um, the clock tower. Oh, yeah. Um, but I think it's the train station specifically, and he's doing Charlie Chaplin-esque gags with the space 
of what could feasibly be an extensive Broadway stage. Mm -hmm. So it's creating a depth that otherwise does not exist. Obviously, it's the most digitally looking thing he ever did. But watching Dial M for Murder, I completely understood even further as to why Hugo is the supreme 3D film, to my mind at the very least. Just because it's using the technology, it's not using it as a gimmick, number one. But number two, it's adding something that if you watch it in the 2D, you don't get um, the right. same effect. And we can talk a little bit about that with Dial M for Murder because there is a difference. There's a very clear difference between yes. the two. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, I, I am I am through and through a 3D champion. I, I will wave the banner of 3D long past it being gone. Yeah. Um, really hoping that the Avatar sequels are able to revitalize the the 3D market because it's dwindling. Um, oh, 20th Century Studios? That's 20th Century Studios. It's never had any other name, right? They're going to put them out. Yeah. Sure they will. Yeah. Cause I know. Like, Sorry. Yeah. yeah just, uh, yes. Dis yeah. Disney has an absolute vendetta against 3D, which is one of the main reasons yeah. for my I didn't mean to open up a wound. Every I'm time sorry. Disney is mentioned. Um, yeah. yeah, but I, I think that – so. I guess I feel that if sound is a gimmick in film, mm -hmm. then okay, fine, 3D is a gimmick in film. And if color is a gimmick mm -hmm. in film, then okay, fine, 3D is a gimmick in film. Yeah. But we the, – the advent of sound was introducing an element into this visually this, – this, this storytelling medium dealing with visuals that more closely resembled real life. Mm -hmm. And then when we introduced color – that also did the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that 3D does that also. Yeah. We, most of us who are fortunate enough to have two eyes also see in 3D. Mm -hmm. And so from that standpoint, it's really hard for me to kind of, you know, bite my tongue when people want to describe 3D as only a gimmick. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I, I really admire and really fall in line with what the way that James Cameron um, describes it is that it should be another instrument of for filmmakers to use. And that if it's a creative choice and is a way to um, to better explore a story or to be immersive when that is actually the filmmaker's intention, mm -hmm. then it, it, it can be and should be masterful. Mm -hmm. If it is used to add $4 to every ticket by the studios um, or by the theaters to, oh, let's do a quick 3D conversion or whatever, yeah. then you are um, muddying. I guess then you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. No, you're, I mean, it's, it's, it's a cheap buck. Is it's what a it, cheap it, buck, and audiences understand that. Like, audiences, audiences are not that stupid. Yeah. Audiences can be stupid in some ways, but they're not that stupid in terms of if they're not getting anything more out of an experience – at adding a you know a premium on their ticket, mm -hmm. then they're not going to go, and so yeah. you're going to see ticket sales fall. But if every film that came out in 3D was an Avatar-like experience, or a Hugo-like experience, or a forget the story for a second, but a Prometheus-like experience. Oh, that's not um, no. I mean, Prometheus. I saw that in IMAX 3D. That looked it's incredible. Yeah, it's, it looks it's fantastic. One of the most gorgeous films I've ever seen. Yeah, it's I, a train I, what, wreck as a movie. Yeah, but well, it's but <laughs> but but visual. But that's what I'm talking yeah. about. Visually, is that that movie was shot in 3D. It was it was planned in 3D. Mm -hmm. It was executed in 3D, and you can tell 
Mm-hmm. The experience of watching that film is different in 3D than it is in 2D. Agreed. Absolutely. Um, and if that's what all 3D films were, as opposed to just a way to make an extra buck, then right. I don't think that we would see the dwindling of 3D the way that we have. Can I tell you a firsthand experience of what this was like? Yeah. So um, I worked at a movie theater uh, from 2007 till 2013. Uh, well, I worked at two different chains, but... This first particular chain I worked from from 2007 to 2000, late 2012, and um, uh, and I won't mention the the full chain out loud, but um, I st- two years into working there, we got Avatar, and I went to one of our other locations to watch it um, at midnight with with some friends, and I was just starting film school, so obviously you know, well let's watch James Cameron's first film in forever. Um, and I walked out satisfied. I was just like, oh, it's interesting. It was Fern Gully with blue cats. Gotcha. Um, and it, but the 3D was undeniably beautiful. So our theater um, only had one or two pro- digital projectors. So we could only show it in certain theaters. We couldn't show it in our biggest seating auditoriums. Mm. So the film sold out in 3D pretty regularly for a while, and we kept it around for a long time. And as we started getting more 3D films, the more 35-millimeter projectors started going away. Mm-hmm. Slow by slow. At the same time, every time I was getting a new 3D film with a 2D print that was adjacent to it, that 2D print was selling out more than the 3D one. The films that would normally do this were ones that were post-converted um, or were ones that were just not using the technology properly. Uh, Hugo just did no business, period, which sucks. But yes. that's that's a whole other issue mm-hmm. with um audiences but <laughs> um but i think that the final like by the time i finally left uh hobbit an unexpected journey was about to come out um another okay. chain that i worked for around that time we had maybe one 3d screening of it uh per uh per show day and it was not the 48 48 frames per second one that he was doing other locations had more but ours was smaller so we'd have mainly 2D because they knew where they were going to make their money. So the the gimmick even started dying within three years. Like, or it started, you know, people weren't taking it seriously. So then people like Peter Jackson, who are using it properly, albeit I haven't seen the 48 frames per second. So I but could also not comment shooting on that. in 3D. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you look at, and I, I'm pretty sure I've got this right because it's a passion of mine. Yeah, is Avatar comes out it breaks the box office Mm -hmm. and the next two movies that come out in 3d clash of the titans and alice in wonderland which which were post-converted and they are both two week post conversions yeah a typical post conversion process is a 12 week process yeah and they these were both done in two weeks yeah so they looked horrible they were hard on the eyes it looked they looked like it looked like pop-up books Mm -hmm. it was atrocious and those were the first two big experiences, which were both um, uh, Clash of the Titans, PG-13, Alice in Wonderland, I think also was PG-13. Uh, either PG or PG-13. PG or PG-13. So, but it was like, bring the whole family, everyone come. Oh my gosh, it's this recreation of this huge epic. And then we're doing this live action retelling of a Disney favorite yeah. and Lewis Carroll favorite and all of these things. Tim Burton, oh my God, look at this. So a lot of audiences went to go see it. Johnny Depp, but he's weird in 3D. <laughs> and they went to go see it in 3D, and it was this horrible experience. But... So if, like, imagine yeah. just, yeah, 
if the first time you had some amazing dinner, whatever your favorite food is, if the mm-hmm. next two times that you had that, it was butchered and horrible and there was hair in the food and it was <laughs> under or overcooked, you would be like, no, I'm good. I yeah. actually, like, it was really fun the first time, but turns out, like, not so much. Yeah. And that's that within the first three f- 3D films that came out, yes. the studios had done a huge disservice to themselves. And what's interesting is like I uh Clash of the Titans made money, but I don't know how much it made by comparison to what I'm about to say, which is Alice in Wonderland is a situation where it made a billion dollars. So people were still going to it even though it was not a good conversion. Right. Or at the which very is least... the worst thing you can do for Hollywood is teach them a bad lesson. Yeah. Which is, oh, we can just throw three D on anything and make a billion dollars. So then when people like Scorsese or Jackson are doing it correctly, or even Cameron if he's deciding to, you know, produce something where he's supervising, you know, like whether mm-hmm. it's an IMAX documentary or I know he did some kind of like uh underwater horror film not too long after that where he produced it or yes. like was involved in the production of it. You know, that that's a disservice to what they do. Is what's interesting is like the Resident Evil movies, like they're not perfect with it, but Paul T- or Paul W. S. Anderson actively had spoken about I'm learning how the technology works. Yeah, does well, it work all the time? Not really, but well, James Cameron put himself up for free. Yeah, he was like, I will come be your 3D technical advisor mm-hmm. on your film. Yeah, I want this to be used, and but then... I need it to be used by creatives, not by studio heads. Yeah, yeah. and then just. Very, very few people took him up on the offer. I remember the the EPK for Hugo was specifically driven towards talking about James Cameron and how great he was. And I was just like, don't, don't do that. (laughs) Don't feed his ego more. Um, But regardless, you know, Cameron did, you know, do something very revolutionary with it these days. Well, let's jump back. Many, many years prior. Yes. Many, many years. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. If Which you is not a dissimilar story oh, to the, well. <laughs> the fallen or the, the rise and fall of, of oh. 3D. <laughs> Uh, that uh, that let's say one one empire took over another empire in that situation. Yes. Um. But no, we're we'll we'll jump back into the 1950s here, the good old 50s. Um. You know, communism's on the rise in our brains, and so we're hiding under desks. Uh. But we're also going to the movies when we're not underneath our desks. Mm-hmm. Um. And uh. But apparently nobody was going to, uh. Alfred Hitchcock's Dial M for Murder, directed by the guy I just mentioned. Um, screenplay by Frederick Knott, based on his play Dial M for Murder. Very successful stage play. Stars Ray Milland, Grace Kelly, Robert Cummings, and John Williams. Music by Dimitri Tiomkin. Uh, and it was released in 1954 uh, and made about $6 million um, for a budget of $1.4. So it made money, made its money, but... So, interesting story. Yeah. Do you know why it was released in 1954? Um, I have not been able to find the reason because I know it was shot in 1953, but they delayed it a bunch. They delayed it because the play was so successful. They legally had to wait until the play run was over ah. to release it, which also delayed the film past the 3D craze. Wow. And that... was part of why it was not successful. So real 3D, like true 3D, like like actually just regular dimensions of your eyeballs <laughs> superseded 3D. Yes. <laughs> we still go to Broadway plays, guys. <laughs> the technology didn't last. 
Oh god, that's that's a shame for Hitchcock. But I mean, that's a that's a testament to the success of this story because this movie has been remade in different forms. It's whether such it's such a smart script, yeah, it's such a smart script. Yeah, and I mean, if you if you are looking for f- similar films, we'll kind of do what we do at the end a little bit in advance. You can watch a Perfect Murder from 1998 with Michael Douglas and Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, at your own risk. I, it's not my favorite thing in the world, but. Um, and Alfred Hitchcock presents has done versions of this, um, uh, has done, or not, uh, not has done versions of this, but has utilized like different motives from this particular piece. Hmm. Um, but you know, this is a, this is a piece that, you know, it, it's weird. Like it, it, sometimes it could, gets confused with sorry, wrong number, um, <laughs> which is a radio play. Um, but it's not like the phone does not take precedent as a as a thematic trope as much as the idea of <laughs> Ray Milan's character thinking he can get away with anything he wants to. Um whereas something like Sorry for Wrong Number is more from the perspective of Barbara Stanwyck. Grace Kelly, the first time we are working with Grace Kelly under Alfred Hitchcock's auspices. Mm-hmm. She's not in the movie that much. Not by not not compared to other times she is working with Hitch. No. In fact, this is very much Ray Milan's show. And it's pretty fascinating to watch. I think Ray Milland is a very interesting 3D character. <laughs> and I say that because he knows how to work with the camera to add to the effect. Normally, Hitchcock's camera is the king and the actors have to play in that box. It seems like this is the first time where this is a compromise because mm-hmm. he knows that the technology is not the same as working with a regular camera. So the actors have to move around in there and can kind of they can kind of dictate a little bit more. They have a little bit more wiggle room. Whereas if you were working with, say, Jimmy Stewart in Rear Window, that camera is locked like is locked with where Hitchcock wants it to be. Mm -hmm. But if the actors need to feel comfortable in order to make the technology work correctly, you have to direct them in such a way that they aren't, you know, they, they aren't they aren't feeling restricted. They need to feel motivated. Ray Milland his motivations for how he moves in this film add to the effect of the 3d, especially in certain medium shots. Oh yeah. I mean, I think that, and I think I, I I would say that's very much by design. I think, especially knowing that they had to go back and reshoot portions of the film and, and um, the things that they were particularly tweaking in the reshoots were um, putting stuff in the foreground. And so I think the precise blocking necessary for that Mm -hmm. um is extremely paramount especially when you're talking about things like focus and movement and framing and things like that is that if an actor isn't on their mark then one or both of the cameras is going to be out of focus and so you did you ruin the shot exactly and that's always an issue even with just one camera because you can (laughs) have to deal with focus even if you're dealing with like 70 millimeter lenses or anything like that if you're talking about a two a 3d camera if you it, they talk about also for Friday the 13th part part three, which is, you know, it's a good example of this. It's like if you weren't in a specific place at a specific time, it's not going to work. Right. Like the technology just won't work and it's just going to misread and you'll have to redo the take anyway, which adds to what you're saying about the reshoots on this film. Like, of course, they would have had to do this. They're mm-hmm. working with technology that they don't fully understand yet. Yep. Um. So before we we're going to jump into the plot here in just a second, but I want to bring it up. This is. The first, truly the first film post the transatlantic pictures phase. Uh, transatlantic pictures is the company that uh, Hitchcock started with Sidney Bernstein, who he worked with during the war period, and had worked earlier in Britain with 
um, they made Rope under Capricorn and then kind of uh, combined forces with Warner Brothers to make Stage Fright. Uh, then went on to work with um, Warner Brothers to create, amongst other things, I Confess with um, uh, Robert Montgomery, um, but or Montgomery Cliff, sorry. Um, and this is the first film post-Transatlantic period because they split up at this point. So now Hitchcock is fully under the studio dome again, but this time it's not in the Selznick realm where... He has Selznick loaning him out to other studios, but he still answers to Selznick. This is Hitchcock really starting to gain a little bit more control. Unfortunately, he's dealing with Jack Warner. And Jack Warner, um, obviously the one who more than... If, if there is any influence into, can you make a 3D picture for us? It's Jack Warner telling him to do that. But that's, again, going into, is this Hitchcock's idea or is this Jack Warner's idea? That's why I say I think it's a little bit of both, because I can't imagine Jack Warner would tell him, no, don't do 3D, when 3D is, in 1953, a rising trend, before it then goes down the tubes later that year into next year. Yeah, I think that it's, I mean, and you're you're probably correct, is that it's somewhere in between. I think that, for me, in the initial things that I was reading yeah. and coming across, the attitude seemed to be more of, oh, Hitchcock this next movie that you are already doing that is called Dial M for Murder, you now need to do it in 3D. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, let's have your next film be 3D. What would you like to do in 3D? <laughs> He's like, and I now, don't know a play. <laughs> right. And now, and now we're catering the, the, the business to that. There's also apparently rumors that Hitchcock never thought the film would play in 3D ever, even though they were shooting it in 3D. That's highly unlikely. And that's highly, yeah, given how well the business was doing through 53 and for 3D films, um, yeah. very, very unlikely. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's highly unlikely. And, and it, and also, uh, it, it just, it doesn't seem to trend well with the the normal thing that we know about Hitchcock, which is he's willing to try new things. He may stick to his old story formulas, but technologically he always tries to advance it when he tries to advance story wise or content wise it's when it becomes tricky and it's called the 60s um, <laughs> which there uh, as we've already discussed um but and also you know this is the first appearance of grace kelly so this is not this is not a footnote in his in hitchcock's history by any stretch no the ultimate hitchcock blonde this is the one that people point to even though she's only in three films obviously the one that comes after this is the big one. This is the one that's the one we will remember her for even more than to catch a thief. I'd honestly say, Oh yeah. Hands down. Hands if down. we're talking about the association with Hitchcock with vertigo. Yep. And, um, and actually Grace Kelly described working uh, with the 3d camera. She said it was like going into the boxing ring with your hands tied behind your back, which makes total um, sense. <laughs> yeah. Which I, yeah, again, kind of leads me to believe that um, the, the, there wasn't much freedom for the actors there that it was like, this is exactly where you need to be. This is how it is. And everyone is kind of at the mercy of not even Hitch's camera, but the technology's camera yes. because he's dealing with that. Which makes me think that Hitch's camera, Hitch's Hitch has to make concessions prior to the setup too. Oh, very much. So yes, yeah. she said that uh, she never saw him lose patience. He mm -hmm. never became angry. Even when the technician said, like, oh, no, with this camera, like, we can't do this. But but it, you told me it would work, Jimmy. <laughs> you told me it would fucking work. But I want it. <laughs> yeah. It's, well, and it's I mean, it, for a guy who was used to pre-production and pre-planning, and, and much like anything else, this movie is storyboarded, it is crafted, it is constructed. You're dealing with a technology that is unproven, so if it doesn't work, it's not going to work, work as efficiently as another film where he 
he knows the setup. All he has to do is point and shoot. Right. Now you're dealing with two cameras. Now you're dealing with different setups. Blocking's going to be different. Lighting can be a tricky issue, too. Mm -hmm. um, and as we see in the prints, the difference between lighting on the 2D print and the 3D print is staggering um, to me. And, and just how light is used. Mm, um, yeah. But this is also a situation where, you know, Hitchcock is... <laughs> it's... It's it's weird because like he had to go through this and rope as well, and so it's interesting that he put himself through this twice within the span of less than ten years. Which is like I'm gonna make this play. How do I make it interesting? Oh, I'll create. I'll, I'll adopt a very crazy technology. First, it's single takes, which were frustrating for the actors, oh, and bet. now it's 3D, which I have to imagine is at the very least annoying to him. Uh, even though, as Kelly says, doesn't lose patience. So I've got a quote here from Hitchcock that I love. He mm -hmm. says, Tremendous new problems with this medium, and most of them in the hands of the director. Mm -hmm. Don't let any of these actors tell you it's difficult, different. It isn't, not for them. In fact, 3D even makes them look thinner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I'm glad you're our expert for this today, because <laughs> I have not been able to find any of this stuff. Um, uh, but um, so... Kelly, to chat with about her for a little bit, um, Hitchcock was uh, one of Kelly's last mentors. Amongst others were like Gary Cooper. So she comes up through the through the scene. She rises really quick, then gets married to a prince, and then leaves just as quick. There's a it's a it's a blip on a radar. It's really interesting how her career flourished. Um, we talked a lot a, a little bit more about her, just the way she activates her agency in something like rear window where she is a character that is basically the hero and Jimmy Stewart is just like left limp in the room. Oh yes. And it's, and it's fascinating in this film though, you're starting off with Grace Kelly. Hitchcock clearly saw the potential. Uh, it was always discussed that uh, Alma and him loved her to death and loved working with her. Pat Hitchcock has, nothing but amazing things to say about their relationship and working with each other because Kelly and Hitchcock were in tandem and understood what one wanted from the other. Um, and this is something that's interesting to watch from the start because even though she is kind of given uh, technically the, the, the kind of the shaft in terms of her importance uh, in the, in dial in for murder, she still shines through. Yes. Because I'd I, just, I just gave her the shaft earlier, too. I said vertigo and not rear window. Like, yeah. Like vertigo a, is uh, Kim Novak. Yeah. Yes. My apologies. Uh, and that was supposed to be Vera Miles, and then Vera Miles got pregnant, and Hitchcock became an asshole. But <laughs> uh, so let's jump into the plot, though, because talking about Grace Kelly as a third wheel, it sounds like that that wouldn't be the case because she has some of the best set pieces in this movie mm -hmm. uh, to herself or to uh, a co-star. But... We'll jump into it. We start with a kiss, and then uh, we reveal it's Raymond and you know Grace Kelly kissing. They're a married couple. Um, Tony and Margot. Tony and Margot. Uh, Wendis. Mm -hmm. Wendis. Uh, not Wenders. Not Wenders. When I I remember I, I remember when I was watching it earlier today in the two D version. I heard the way they're saying Wendis. Mm -hmm. I was like. Wind, wind, wind Wenders? Oh. <laughs> wind Wenders? I just like that. Is that with a double S? No. No, an ICE. ICE. Wend Dice. <laughs> you know, roll them. Roll them. <laughs> um, no, Tony and Margot are married. Uh, Seem like they're happy. She reads in the paper that Mark Halliday has arrived. Mark Halliday, the famous crime writer. Um, so he uh, arrives on a boat. And then the next shot we see, um, 
Margot is not only dressed in red, but smooching Mark. So clearly she's Uh-oh. been unfaithful. Uh-oh. Um, and you hear Hitchcock in the back going like, yep, it's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> look, 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 look. This is the part where they're going to say that they can't go through with it anymore. But then little does she know that her husband knows. Because guess what? Her husband does know. Yes, he does. Uh, Ray Meland. Tony, Tony knows what's going on. Um, but we don't find it out fully. First, we're kind of just given the whole, you know, friendly banter between uh, uh, infidel, uh, uh, the person who's committing the infidelity and the husband. And um, uh, Grace, uh, Margot and Mark are sent off to see a show. He's got to take care of some business. In fact, he calls up uh, a, a person that uh, is selling a car and trying to get him over there to try to settle the price. It, in fact, is Charles Swan, uh, who uses, amongst other things, other aliases, but Tony knows him from college. He knows him also to be a thief. Yes. And uh, somebody of ill repute. (laughs) And over the course of a scene of what is basically exposition and plot, we get Ray Moland acting his ass off in such a beautiful way. It's like watching... A great comedy performance with a straight man in the comic with Tony Dawson as Mr. Swan being your straight man and kind of asking the questions and Meland responding in tandem like a very perfectly timed vaudeville routine of drama. It is it is fascinating because this is usually the moment where this would be boring as sin, where he's explaining every single detail of his what he knows and what he plans to do. But he makes it a character piece. Uh, if you watch the performance, um, especially within the 3D, you watch him. He's grabbing different things and just wiping the fingerprints off. That's my favorite part of the whole film. It's it's, it's this wonderful cat and mouse scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and I especially like, I mean, the setup for it is, you know, when he's calling um, Swan over thinking he's going to buy his car, he's already talking to him saying, like, I'm not too happy with the price at $1,100. I'm going to talk you down. You're going to have a couple brandies, and I'm going to I'm going to talk you down. And so he's even setting the conversation up as, I'm going to be persuasive, and I'm going to be playing with you. And it ends up being exactly that, but has nothing to do with the car. Yeah. And, and there is this, once the trap is set, when he starts going around the room, and continuing to gleefully tell his story mm-hmm. while wiping Swan's fingerprints off of everything <laughs> that he has touched around the apartment. It's amazing. Excuse me, do you mind if I fuck with you some more? Yes, yes, yes. Now I'm going to continue fucking with you. Are you ready for me to keep fucking with you? That's, that's what he's doing, yeah. It's, it, but it's just like the, the, the precision that he's doing it with is this is clearly a thing that he is obsessed over mm-hmm. for a very long time and he has it all laid out. And yep. so now he's just having fun in the execution, mm-hmm. pun intended, of this plan that he has. Yep. And then it's like he's not even – he doesn't even need Swan to respond because he knows he's got him. Yeah, and he's using – and, and this, is, this goes back to Hitchcock. It's weird because a lot of stuff that happens in this film finds itself back again in Rear Window in terms of just – it's small things, it's props, it's different things that are set up at the beginning that pay off down the line um, – the bank book is a great example of how that comes back for more of a comedic effect. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the key, the use of the key. We'll talk about the key later because the key is fun. Um, and the stockings. There are different. There are different MacGuffins in this plot that don't mean anything to the overall impact, but they mean something to the characters because they've got to find this thing in order to figure out what happened. Um, and so they keep discussing and. It's revealed that Swan has been conning different ladies and uh, basically he murdered at least one mm -hmm. uh, and that he's being blackmailed to kill Margot so that Tony can abscond with his funds. Because we should say not only is he a uh, privileged scary fuck, um, he's also a penniless rich privileged fuck. Failed tennis star. Yeah, exactly. Who who gave up tennis to be with his wife. Or an aged tennis star. I yeah. think that, yeah, there's there's definitely some interesting things going on with uh, Tony sort of running away from his age and, um, yeah, in, do, in the film. Do you think that uh, uh, Tony met Farley Granger from Strangers on a Train during a tennis match and they just said hi to each other? And then that's where the universes cross? At least, I try, yes. <laughs> I want to bring the MCU into this, but it, it just has been hard to. Now I realize, oh, there's two tennis pros in two Hitchcock movies. Like it, This is not a coincidence, guys. It's go. all connected. Um, but so, yeah, Tony says, I'll pay a 1000 to kill my wife. And he goes through the plot of how to kill the wife. He, he basically plans out the perfect murder, mm -hmm. how to get away with it. And... In a Hitchcock film, the way, uh, like, a lot of the stuff, like, the initial, like, details of these plots aren't always meant to, you know, like, matter so much as the overall impact of, like, you kill this person. The details, because they're kind of being thrown at you so fast, you feel like you are in the presence of a mastermind, like a criminal, like, a criminal genius to a certain degree, because he is, he is basically laying out every perfect angle. It is fascinating to watch is for from a film this early back it's it's also interesting to see a uh, a thriller around a murder mm. where the protagonist is actually the bad guy yeah um the, he's the one who's driving the entire plot it's and from his point of view also empathizing with him because yeah. as the film kind of goes it's just like oh is he gonna get found out is the chief inspector gonna catch on what's gonna happen and so in doing that, the the machinations of the script and of the film essentially make this a heist film. Yeah. Except what he's stealing is his wife's life mm -hmm. and yeah. then her insurance money. Yeah. The life insurance money. It's and it's interesting, like I mean I mean, obviously from by the time we get to the end, you are I mean I, I mean, and it would be hard to say this for every single person, but your your empathy with Tony runs out to a certain extent. Because it's going so far, and she, when you see Grace Kelly, by the end of the film, she's clearly been through hell. Oh yeah, there's a very like a very masterful, subtle shift that happens. Yeah, where we're seeing things happen that Tony's not privy to, mm -hmm. and that gets the audience in the place where they can celebrate the end of the film the way that they do with the way that it ends, mm -hmm. um, in a way that doesn't have them feeling defeated. Yeah. Just because Tony was defeated. And, um, however, the, the 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 driving course of the film is, I mean, Tony's still the protagonist. He's still the one driving the film. Yeah. But f through the majority of the film, the audience is in, I don't think necessarily like w wanting for Margot to die, but it is this like 
oh, I wonder if it's going to happen. Could, could it, he get away with it? Will it work out? Yeah. And I kind of hope it does. Yeah. It's the dark. It's that dark underbelly of like, it's funny. Strangers on a train kind of addresses this similar situation. Like, and you, you are wondering like, well, what would happen if you did the crisscross? And then we get the answer and it's, and it's disturbing, but you know, and this one is kind of like, he's disarming you a lot with his charm because even though he is actively talking about, I want you to kill my wife. And if you don't kill my wife, I'm going to blackmail the fuck out of you. Like you're still just like, yeah, but, but could he get away with it? (laughs) At the the offer of a thousand dollars, the response is for murder. And the retort to that is like, it's just a couple of minutes. (laughs) (laughs) It's the typical rich guy response. Like, I'll give you a hundred dollars if you take a shit on my shoe. Like, <laughs> don't, it's just like two seconds of work for you and one bean burrito. It's nothing. Um, but so Tony, uh, Tony convinces him, wears this guy down, and they kind of basically go over, you know, how are you going to get in? Like, how are you going to, how are you going to, uh, how are you going to sneak up behind her? Um, and like, really think, I, like, I mean, just it's a heist film. It's yeah. like. Here's what we need to break in. Here's what the security guards are. Here's what the security system is. It is a heist film through and through. Yeah, the only thing it's missing is Carl Reiner asking if we're going to steal eleven million dollars. <laughs> I mean, if he was in the corner, it'd be interesting. But um, no, so they, he he goes over that plot. He introduces the element of the key, which is very important. The key is our main MacGuffin, which is that the key itself means nothing other than it's important to figure out where these keys end up in order to figure out who, in order for others to figure out what's going on, mm-hmm. because. We are again dealing with a perfect bomb under the table scenario where we are privy to everything that is going on. We are privy to everything that Ray Meland is about to execute, and then we have to watch the other people around them figure it out. Um, normally in a detective movie, which this kind of is, that can be frustrating. Um, you've got a situation like 12 years prior where you have an, a Sherlock Holmes movie where Sherlock Holmes is two steps behind the audience itself. So something like this... Obviously, you don't have a stigma of a master detective. What you have instead is John Williams, which is just, I think, is just equally as charming. Chief um, Inspector Hubbard. Yeah. And we also have like some stuff like this happen to great effect uh, down the line in our generation, whether it's like Knives Out is a great example of that, where we are given a lot of stuff up front and get to watch that bomb under the table. And when is when is that knowledge going to fully come out? And then when it does, how is it elaborated on it further? Um, and in the case of this, a lot of stuff gets revealed as time goes on. It's just a matter of do these pe- are these people ever going to believe what's going on? Yes. Um, so we cut to the next day because it's been planned for that next day. Which I love the line before where he's just like, "Tomorrow, I- I've got to think this over." Like, which I agree with. I agree with uh, Swan because it's murder. It's not. I'm gonna like steal a necklace. It's taking a life. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's and it's a typical scenario of like fifties, forties and fifties pulpy kind of seedy dramas of just like these people who are willing to kill at the drop of a dime that don't consider anything beyond that. Like they're very they're drawn very one dimensionally, but Swan is very interesting because he does have hesitation, and that whole scene shows that he's not fully sold on this idea until it's absolutely clear he has no other way to get out without risking his own um, freedom. Yeah, I mean, because that's the thing is, like, it doesn't matter whether he's resistant or not. He has no choice. Yeah. Because this is the trap that Tony set for him. Mm. And, 
like that's you know it's going to happen the way it's going to happen because that's what Tony wants. It's my mouse trap. Would you like to come into my mouse trap? <laughs> um, so it's the next day. Um, Mark and Tony are going to go to a stag party, and uh, he's uh, he the way the plan is set up. Grace Kelly has to stay home the entire night. She's supposed to listen to her Saturday Saturday night theater, um, but she doesn't want to do that tonight. Because it's a thriller, and she gets scared thriller. because of thrillers. And then Hitchcock's in the back going like, you're in one. That's why it's funny. <laughs> yes. You know I don't like watch. You know I don't like thrillers when I'm alone. <laughs> this, this is what I'm good at. You see, you see I, I, I did meta before that Joss man did it for that, <laughs> for that superhero thing. <laughs> <laughs> I still love that Hitchcock knows modern day things modern references. Uh, modern references yeah no he oh he's so like seinfeld what's the deal with airline food um but no so she he raymond raymond has to essentially convince grace kelly to stay in the house and it becomes one of what i think is one of the funniest games of gaslighting like oh you don't want to wait in the theater <laughs> like you don't want to what don't you want to stay at home like just kind of like no you're not <laughs> the outside is terrible. Don't do it. Like it, it's it's pretty. It's it's not like what you get in Vertigo down the line, where it's just people intentionally fucking with people. This is one just kind of like just being coy as shit, <laughs> and I fucking love it. Um, and he's basically convincing her stay in this house. He's also got to get the key switched out because she's got her extra key. He's got his key. He needs to get her key to get it under. The stairwell outside, so that Swan can break in. Yeah, there's this there's this fantastic conversation that happens right right before this scene, where the idea of is a perfect murder possible gets mm. brought up with the the thriller writer. Yes, um, with Mark, and this discussion happens, which essentially is the film. It's this small little conversation that's wonderful that is the entire film, which is yes, it's possible to plan a perfect murder it's possible to write a perfect murder but life always kind of like gets in the way yeah it's the something opposite always... of jeff goldblum's <laughs> sorry ian malcolm <laughs> life doesn't always find a way sometimes life gets in the way now, now, now um, m- m- land you can't just you, you can't just do a murder you, you just sometimes the dinosaurs will just come like that's what they do oh, I, yes yes i feel yes, like yes. i'm trapped between two films i don't understand and i also have wings for some reason so i think i might be a fly <laughs> Let me vomit on a donut. You know what? Actually, over. I. You know what? This makes me realize Jeff Goldblum would have been great in a Hitchcock movie. I don't know which. I don't know where you exactly put him, but he would have been great somehow. I know he would have been able to bring something to it. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's like, actually, he would have been fun in Jamaica Inn. <laughs> Replace Charles London with him. <laughs> Just let him have fun with that role. Oh, Jeff Goldblum in Jamaica Inn, guys, make it happen. Disney, you can make it happen. You you make other things happen, right? You make um, things happen. But yeah, no, it's we get an allusion to what's going to happen down the line, and mm-hmm. it's also, uh, a, you know, a, a commentary on the genre itself, where it's just right. like, well, these crimes always have a way of being fucked up one way or another, and then getting solved. Um, and that ends up being the film is that we're we're just kind of seeing like, does Tony actually have everything figured out? Yeah, and when things go wrong, how quick can he be on his feet? He presumes that things work like clockwork in a way that life is... He is privileged because he just assumes life runs according to his clock. It's... Yeah, you're right. He is extremely privileged. Like, 
in a bad, bad way. <laughs> like, and and on that note, I think that there's there's an interesting thing going on also with with time and Tony's relationship with time because mm-hmm. one of the things that gets messed up is he forgets to wind his watch. Yeah, and so when he needs to time this call back to his flat so that the murder can happen, he forgets to wind his watch so he doesn't know what time it is. And he has to reach out to others to compare time. So even he's not fully committed to the perfection of this crime that he supposes will go off without a hitch. (laughs) Um. But I think, yeah, I think that there's, there's a bit to be said about Tony really trying to take back control of time. Yeah. Is that he's this aging tennis star gets aged out of being able to play tennis and was married because he was this tennis star and this young, awesome hotshot. Who then convinced him to stop is what he says in the uh, speech is that she convinced him to stop playing. Well, right. But I, but I think that part of that is, is because like, is he convinced to stop because he's getting older? Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, she's already carrying on with another person. So yeah. he's now lost this. He, you know, he's very much sees his wife, Margot as this prize yeah, and that he is now lost. And so if he can't have her, no one's going to have her. And I'll get this all figured out. Yeah. And so he's really trying to like take back control of this loss of power, this loss of time. Mm-hmm. It ends up being the thing that really partially screws him over, trips him up in terms of not winding his watch. Yeah. And then it um, is it then it just kind of begins. You know, at one point there's the phrase of like get the ball rolling. Is mm-hmm. that now it is clockwork? Yeah. All of the pieces have been set have have been set in place, and now we're just kind of watching things happen yeah. and time catches up with them yeah exactly and if anything it's it, 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 it what's lovely is is that because his it, he's so certain that it has to be tomorrow because this is the way i've set it up because he's looking for an efficiency that will be proven to not exist because it extends way beyond its its expected date right um, well e- even even to the extent of he's trying to have this like this wonderful um irony of the guy who is cuckolding him mm-hmm. being his alibi. Yeah. But he also happens to choose for his alibi this expert mystery thriller crime writer who, could who basi- solves it all. Who could basically, <laughs> and who, if anything, could corrob- corroborate him. Like, if something were to happen, it'd be like, well, you know, I I deal with this in in my line of work, and this seems to add up. And then that way he won't be suspicious and start snooping around. He's trying to cover every angle. He's just not paying attention to... The tiniest things, like his watch, or sometimes not everybody wants to listen to the radio on a Saturday night, or the fact that sometimes people answer the phone because they're worried about their significant other. (laughs) Well, and also the thing that he finally convinces Margot to stay at home and do Mm -hmm. is finish her newspaper clippings, which causes her to leave the scissors out, Mm -hmm. which is what causes the murder to go wrong. Yep. And And what's interesting is like her... Grace Kelly gives a great performance in this movie. I know I was talking about how she's kind of like a third wheel, but she is giving a terrific performance. She is important to the story, obviously. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that she, throughout the entirety of this, she never suspects him once. She no. never even remotely does that. At the beginning of the conversation with uh, Mark Halliday, she says that he's changed. It's different from when he would have been more suspicious or of a jealous husband. She's thoroughly convinced he's changed, if it, in which we know, obviously, he's gotten worse like over time obviously yeah it's it's i think that she 
that is also a very interesting setup to Tony's character mm-hmm. is that she does say several times, oh, you don't understand, he's changed, he's changed. And mm-hmm. I think that she has probably noticed like a sinister glint in his eye or a coldness about him. Yeah. And would maybe suspect him of directly murdering her. Yeah. But of setting some elaborate trap. Yeah, no, it just no. feels like it wouldn't happen for the sake of that money and whatnot. I mean, it's it's interesting because you do get both of their perspectives. It's it's kind of like Marriage Story, but not really. Like, you know, and I know that sounds like a joke, but it's just like you are getting the dif- their different perspectives and it helps enhance what this marriage is and what what leads to its ultimate un- un- unraveling. Um, not yes. even just through the murder itself, but also like how he continues to manipulate her because she's in, she's technically in a jam because she's left alone in the house. Mm -hmm. He's gone off to the stag party with Mark. We're waiting for Swan. Swan gets in and we're dealing again with Hitchcock dealing very well with very minimal sound. Only the pictures. We are seeing the plan unfold beautifully lit. Let's talk a little bit about the 3D here for these two scenes that we've been discussing to death really quick because the the amount of the amount of voyeurism in this film is even more staggering on a 3D level than Rear Window can be at times. Um, Rear Window is obviously the best example of the voyeurist or the POV angle on Hitchcock. I'd argue if you watch Dial In for Murder in 3D, you are watching an active voyeur voyeuristic participation within that viewing. You are actively a voyeur in that movie and you are brought into it because of the third dimension angle on it. Um, a lot of stuff in the foreground to suggest that people are kind of snooping in um, while also adding the depth that is required for that shot to create that 3d effect and to make it work. Yeah. It's, it's a very involving use of 3d. It's, mm-hmm. um, it is. It's uh, yeah. It, it's interesting. It's I think it's it's a pretty unique way. Um, from what I've experienced, most three D, most three D seems to be immersive in the way that like wraps the world around you. Mm-hmm. And in Dial M for Murder, the three D, the particular use of it throws you into the flat. Yeah. And it's I know that that's you can argue semantics. <laughs> I, I'll argue it all day long. Yeah. Um. That. But it is it is a nuanced difference. Yeah. But it is unsettling. Yeah. And I, I mean, I have not seen Dial M for Murder in 2D. I have no reason to ever. No, you don't. Um, I mean, but I, I clearly saw that today because your setup is amazing. You can't see it, folks, but he's got a setup that would, you know, make any cinephile jealous. I call it sanctuary. Yes, there you go. Yeah, and then you sometimes you ring a bell on top of your apartment building every night and <laughs> say those words. Um but you're right. It is. It, it, you are brought into not only to that flat, you are brought into their conflict. You are brought into their dilemma and their drama to the point where when we get to the buildup of Swan about to kill her, you are like you are just you are you are at a distance, obviously, but you are you are on the edge of your seat because you feel like he's reaching out for someone who could be you. Mm-hmm. You can, you can be put in Grace Kelly's place. You could be even, you can even be put in Ray Milan's place in certain areas of this film, but you are actively participating with everything that's going on. And when we get to the murder sequence, it's, 
it's an un I, I felt it was an unnerving use of three D in terms of how that murder takes place because you want to talk about sticking your hand out or like, you know, you know, doing paddle balls at the screen like in House of Wax. When her hand extends out, it's unsettling until she grabs the scissors and then stabs Swan in the back because yes. um, he's about to strangle her with um, nylons. Um, yeah, which just like I'm not I don't love that I'm giving homicide advice. But <laughs> well, then don't <laughs> nylons are like just way too stretchy of a material to try to strangle someone with <laughs> the amount of force that it takes to get them taut enough to actually be a resistance that's going to cut off someone's air or windpipe is just uh, it's not practical. It's <laughs> so Swan, get get it together, man. <laughs> nylons was a bad choice. It's <laughs> got a Hitchcock just watching it in the screening room. Oh, that's that's not realistic. Oh, fuck! God damn it! That seemed like a good idea. I didn't. It seemed like a good idea at the time. I Alma, Alma. Well, did I see stockings or did you say stockings? Swan's a hands-off murderer. The person that he murdered before he overdosed, he poisons. Yeah, so it it's, was, he didn't have to be present for. Yeah, he's so not, he's an amateur. And it's also like with with her, it's he is trying to make it quick because he's scared shitless. Whereas the other one, it's more calculated and methodical. To his ends, much like Ray Milland is. Mm -hmm. But when you're in a stressful situation where you're just being asked yesterday, I want you to kill somebody for a thousand pounds or I'll blackmail you. He's a stressed out killer. And, you know, that leads into why he can make such a mistake as to not see a pair of scissors prior to committing his murder or, you know, finding something other than pantyhose to strangle a woman. So. Um, you know, so she stabs him with the scissors. He falls. Prior to the struggle, she gets a call from Ray Milland, but Milland isn't answering the phone because he's he's timed this whole thing wrong because <laughs> of his damn watch. Um, yeah, so this is happening like late, late, late at night, and the yeah. whole plan is he's Tony's going to call Margot, his wife at home, who's mm -hmm. sleeping in bed. And that's going to get her to wake up and cross the living room yeah. completely in the dark and make her vulnerable to this strangling. Yeah. That's the whole setup for the murder. Yeah. And uh, and what we see is Juan hesitating m much longer than it seems like he should be. Well, I think that – and that's, again, I'm – maybe I'm the sick one here, but I'd, I – that is a moment of pure Hitchcock comedy to yeah. me is watching um, Swan trying to strangle her – but she has her hand up with the phone to her ear. Mm -hmm. And so her wrist and the phone are blocking his ability to actually get yeah. the nylons around her neck. So every time that he thinks that she's going to hang up, he makes a move to go strangle her. And then she keeps talking and then he has to draw back. And it's this it's this back and forth moment in this all of this tension, especially in 3D, because you can see exactly how close he is to her and just that him coming out from the curtains behind her. And it's all right there in your face. But it's this like the comedy in this dark, dark, dark moment. It's you're, amazing. You're in a black box of macabre humor in there. And it's and it's unsettling in the 3D because of that depth that is added. Like good 3D can sometimes feel like a stage play, which this is. Mm hmm. And it can also just feel like you are stepping into their living room, which this is. So it's using all those best techniques. Um, not to mention the fact that, you know, you've got other things kind of at play with Hitchcock's editing. Hitchcock, 
you know, edits to the points where he wants to. It's all intentional. It's all methodical. Um, one of the best shots in 3D is one that I, I learned today was constructed in a way I didn't expect, which is the close-up of the phone that Ray Milland uses to call his wife. It's a big-ass telephone with a big-ass finger that was constructed by Mr. Hitchcock to get the close-up as possible because a close-up is not as easy as you'd think, especially with two cameras, on something so small as a phone like that and somebody's finger. So he had to construct a giant telephone. And yes, there is a picture, and I'll post it on the Instagram. I love it you with can all see my heart. It, it's Hitchcock with the giant telephone, and he's flipping, the and camera he's off. flipping <laughs> the camera off. This, you know, and and people can you know tell me that Hitchcock doesn't curse, and I'm like, yep, well, I now have the evidence. Hitchcock flipping off the press, like it's, but it's that subtle flip off. It's, His it, middle finger is pointing right to the M. Yeah, the, he's just, but he's just like, you know, I, I'm I'm pointing at the M, but I'm really saying F as an F you <laughs> tell me I can't make 3d I'll make 3d <laughs> um, but so the murder doesn't go planned um, Ray Milan then goes oh, oh darling hello so <laughs> so clearly this didn't work out she's like come home come home he says don't touch anything I'll be home and he gets back and he immediately starts trying to cover his tracks amongst other things taking out of a taking a key out of Swan's pocket, the dead Swan, uh, and placing the the letter that Grace Kelly's character had received from Mark Halliday that uh, confirms their infidelity, uh, puts it in Swan's pockets and basically sets his wife up for murder, <laughs> murder charges. Yeah, which least. again, I think speaks to how quickly Tony's able to speak or to think on his feet mm -hmm. is that he comes back to his flat to find this plan did not go off. Yeah. And his response is, yeah, but it, I still may be able to make something out of this. I still may be able to get rid of my wife anyway. Yeah. Um, and then starts to craft this other thing in the course of everything as it's happening. Right. There's no time to plan this. Yeah. And so he's basically it's, it's, it's cover up time and you know, it's, as you said, he's he's smart. He doesn't he leaves nothing to chance to the point of just which like he sees what Swan was using for his instrument of murder. And, you know, much like you, you are. He's just like, that's fucking stupid. Like, <laughs> this is too stretchy. <laughs> but I mean, he doesn't say that, but I think he's looking at that and he's a little like, there's a tinge of confusion in his face that I like. But he figures it out and he takes the other two nylons that are out of her sewing basket and places one underneath to set it up as if though she was planning to do something like this. Um, and we cut then to the police being called. They come in to investigate where we have that wonderful God's eye of Hitchcock coming down to tea that pushes a... Um, a table mount off the table to reveal a second stocking, which is the reveal of our plant for Grace Kelly to be set up. Mm -hmm. We then cut to intermission because you had to change the projectors in 3D, even though most people probably saw this in 2D, so the intermission would have been crazy. <laughs> so, yeah, that's another interesting thing about um, even though the film lengthwise didn't require an intermission – because the 3D process required two projectors to be going at once, yep. typically when you're projecting 35-millimeter film, 
you would have reel one on one projector in mm. the theater and then reel two on the second. And angled accordingly so and that it, you could change the reels for reel three or reel four. Um, so when your cigarette burn timings happen, uh, if you've ever seen Fight Club, that explains that. Or mm-hmm. the wonderful Masters of Horror film Cigarette and, Burns. And, yeah, and, uh, uh, and Glorious Bastard says it too. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're, the reel changes are switching from projector to projector. Well, in 3D, you need both of those projectors to be firing at once. So mm-hmm. you have to have an intermission so that you can change both of those reels at the same time. Yeah. And it's, so it's a situation where, like, even House of Wax, House of Wax is a short movie, too, even shorter than this one. It has an intermission. And it's actually much more a split down the middle. This one is much more the first two big instances. Of, like, it's actually broken up much like the play probably would be on on stage yes like yeah. it, it is it is broken up at a logical point so in a sense it doesn't not not work <laughs> it's just it's weird for a movie this short because this movie is only about an hour 45 minutes yeah so to see an intermission like that but for getting the play experience heck i think we we, we got the full monty there we can go out and have our cigarettes drink our cognac we're all set yes um <laughs> on that intermission i'm gonna take one myself sergeant look see how the stocking we are back from the intermission of the Samley silhouette. We are now here into the second half of our 3D episode. So put back on your 3D headphones and <laughs> get ready. I'm joined back by Marshall Rosales. I am keeping this in here, by the way, because oh. I think this is I will use that intermission music and it'll be so much fun. Wonderful. So we we leave intermission. Which is, this was perfectly timed, by the way. God, this is perfect. Um, we leave intermission, and we are back, and uh, it is the following day, and <laughs> Tony's just like, well, okay, now let's get our story straight, babe. <laughs> you you don't know nothing. <laughs> but it, he's basically just trying to warp her testimony so that when it f- eventually is so flimsily unfolded, it's just assumed that she did it. Um, and, you know, we're dealing again with we're dealing with Tony just, you know, trying to have control in every portion of this situation to the to the point where it's going to start. It, you can start to see it unwind for him, even though it feels like he could still get away with it. Like you're still holding on to the notion of like, maybe this will somehow work itself out. Like the audience is kind of putting its own little denial spin the way Ray Miland is, because it's almost just like, well, you went this far. Maybe you can get away with it. <laughs> right. Well, the the kind of the rhythm of the film is very interesting because we have this wonderful long setup of we figure out who Tony is, who Margot is, who Mark is, and this sort of, you know, what's going on with the infidelity. Mm-hmm. And then Tony invites Swan over and we meet him and we find out about this whole plot. And then the second the scissors go in Swan's back, we now no longer know what's going to happen. Yeah. And the film at that point takes the course of we don't get to hear an inner monologue um, from Tony to understand how he's going to put these things together every time something goes a little bit off or every time something gets changed. But so now we're on this roller coaster where the audience was almost in this position of being lulled into this place of comfort of like, okay, I know what's going to happen. Let's just see if it if it continues Mm -hmm. and then when it goes completely the other direction 
Now we're just on, we're strapped in and we're on this ride and we don't know where it's going. And what's interesting is when he has a plan, he can talk a lot of shit mm-hmm. and he can expout a lot of dialogue. When he has to make it up on the fly, suddenly some pure cinema kicks in and suddenly we have to watch him in action without saying a damn word. The majority of the times that he has to change his plan, it is all silent. It is all in that pure cinema method that Hitchcock is such a big fan of. Thank you. Um, but so he, you know, we get to see his brain at work through the power of through the power of the camera lens. Yeah. And in that 3D way, you know, we're watching. We're in the room with him. We're scurrying around with him. Like we are brought to his level of anxiety in a way that I don't think. Any 3D film after it has ever done. I like. I mean, I talked about Hugo as being one of my favorites. Not even it has this level of anxiety, and there's anxious moments in that movie to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. But like, and Avatar is an action movie that has a different type of anxiety. But like, in terms of a drama or a murder mystery or something like that, 3D doesn't touch that anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think that it. This really speaks to a wonderful use of 3D in a way that isn't in a isn't spectacular. Yeah. Um because the whole film takes place in this like quaint little London flat. London flat. Yeah. And it's lamps and couches and end tables and like that's what we're seeing and that's what we're exploring mm-hmm. but the 3D nature of it brings us onto that stage in a way that makes that enhances the emotion and the the dynamics going on between the the players and ultimately like you said the suspense and the mm-hmm. thrills um whereas i think most of the times people people think when they think of 3D they think oh it's like sci-fi superhero big spectacle yeah. i'm going to see a lot of explosions and be in space uh, or underwater or whatever it is mm-hmm. and that's not necessary no, it's not it, necessary to have a, a you know a, a transportation of the audience no. with 3D. There's a, there's a logic. I mean, like it, this is this may be a little flimsy, but like I, I think about the Hateful Eight in times like this because of just the, it's one setting location. And it's a most recent example of like we're in one room. That would have been an interesting 3D movie. If mm-hmm. nothing else, for the amount of blood that would have been flying off the walls, because Mr. Tarantino would have just been like more, more, <laughs> just spray it. Um, but it, that's a film that could utilize that. And I thought about the one location as a good source for 3D because it be, it allows the immersion to work better. Um, I brought up rope earlier as a possibility for that, and I stand by that in the respect that like the intention with rope is to take a very similar situation where the audience is fully aware of something from moment one and has to live with that tension and that suspense and that drawn out feel the entirety of the film. So on, on that note, I I think that in the recent past, the biggest missed opportunity for you utilizing 3d in like in the perfect, perfect way. Mm -hmm. And I understand they couldn't have done it for budgetary reasons and all that kind of stuff, but was hardcore Henry. Yeah, yeah. Um, is that I think that the the GoPro first person perspective of that film was really innovative. The one thing it was missing was this. If this was 3D, it would have been perfect. Yeah. I mean, like and I think that they were trying to even angle within like simulate the, the VR experience. But it's just like, yeah, but it's flat. So you're you're taking away the angle that could make it like the, the biggest selling point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like, and it's a situation where I think it's it's difficult for those types of films to get 
that kind of technology put behind them because of the way the industry has changed in such a way. Mm-hmm. And frankly, the fact that Hitchcock even got to make a 3D film, given his experience with the genre that he usually tackles, is kind of a miracle in and of itself. It is, but man, I'll tell you that when I first found out about Dial M for Murder being shot in 3D, I was just like, I'm done. I'm done with people being... Like putting 3D down and putting these gimmicks down, like yeah. like oh, I'm so sick of the reboots and the remakes. Guess who remade his own films? I'm so sick of 3D. It's just a gimmick. Guess who made yeah. 3D films or a 3D film? It's just like shut up, get, you know, just like get off your high horse about what you think is beneath film, capital F film. Marshall, this is this is Hitch. I want to thank you because I've been trying to tell people for years that it, we are trying to make the audience happy. And sometimes you redo things and sometimes you try new things because it's all make fucking believe. Thank you. Good night. All right, I'm back now. Hey, were you talking to a fat guy earlier? <laughs> um, I was. Yeah, I mean, it's but it's true. The idea, it's just like I mean, remakes for, well, the remake situation. We talk, there's a, there if you, you, by this time, people have already heard our man who knew too much episode. But like, the idea of remaking his own property—that's probably the more audacious element. It's just like the filmmaker's going back to his own thing himself as the director, which doesn't always happen. Like Michael Haneke does it with Funny Games, mm-hmm. but you know, like with and with three D, I mean, like that's that's somehow more understandable. But you're right; you can't put down these different elements of the way this industry works because they've been doing this since the start of this. The best version of the Maltese Falcon is a remake. It's the third remake. It's well, not even. <laughs> these are they're just tools. Yeah. They're tools and elements with which we tell stories. Exactly. And if they are used in a haphazard or amateur way, then they're going to come across haphazard and amateur. And that's when pe- then and that and that is when like I love a film snobbery of its of a sort to a degree, but that's when people who get too extreme about it can latch onto that and create a weird argument uh, an argument that i find very flimsy <laughs> but it somehow has a lot of prominence so mm-hmm. you're right these things are not gimmicks so much as they are different tools to tell the different pieces of art that can exist in the world um it's just a matter as you said of how you're using it um and how hitchcock uses this is fantastic and it's complemented by the greatest detective in cinema history next to Sherlock Holmes and uh, Daniel Craig. Because <laughs> I really liked Knives Out, guys. Um, but, um, no, we are introduced to John Williams. No, not that John Williams, guys. I'm speaking of the actor John Williams. He was a Hitchcock mainstay. He was on the Alfred Hitchcock Presents show. You'd know him as H.H. H. Hewley from To Catch a Thief, which we discussed on the first episode. Today he is Chief Inspector Hubbard. And he introduces himself as a police officer. As a police officer. <laughs> but he is so much more. Because any time that Tony is trying to string Hubbard along, Hubbard says, no, I ain't catching that fish, <laughs> to use the fishing analogy. And he basically just pokes holes in everything. So you are watching, you are watching a battle of wits between Tony and Hubbard that is... I think fantastic to watch because Hubbard never flinches and neither does Tony. Tony, like I don't see an instance in that scene, which is this basically the second to last moment of the movie where Tony uh, even flinches. Like he, he works on his feet and allows confusion to play in his favor. 
mm-hmm. because it, cre- it, uh, it it backs up his own disbelief at what's going on. And her uh, Margot's confusion only adds to the suspicion that she is the one behind killing Swan directly. So it's a game of emotion that's being played out. It's 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 constructed with the meticulousness that only Hitchcock could have. Yes, there's a sequence near the introduction of Chief Chief Inspector Hubbard where Chief Inspector Hubbard hands his notebook to Mark to ask him to write his address down. Right, and we have this wonderful shot that like goes in, pushes in to the notebook that is like this moving insert and then goes up to Hubbard's face. And we see Hubbard recognize the handwriting from Mark writing his address down from the letter that was found on the dead person, which was this love note from Mark to Margot. And we see that realization happen on his face. And then he, without skipping a beat asks Tony to go check on something in the garden so that, he can ask Mark, how long has this been going on between you and Margot? And does Tony know about it? And it's just this. And it, and again, it's pure cinema. Yeah. No lines of dialogue are spoken. Mm-hmm. And we're, we know exactly what is going on. And the acting from uh, Williams is phenomenal. And it, it, it yeah. in this one tight little sequence, we go from recognizing Chief Inspector Hubbard as the antagonist to, to, to Tony mm-hmm. to falling in love with him. I'm just being like, oh, this guy's smart and he's like delicate with delicate issues. Like he's sincere because mm-hmm. he doesn't have he doesn't have it all figured out yet. Yeah. But he's like, there's a lot of stuff going on right here. And it's just it's a phenomenal t- little tiny moment. Did you see the turn that happens? Um, that that kind of happens within that when he sends Tony outside, and he kind of turns and just like, how long has he? How long have you been to having an affair? <laughs> it's it's not it's not like a flip of just like, all right, you fuckers, listen up. <laughs> like it's just it is as you said, it's that delicate touch. He knows when to be sensitive to certain things, and it's it's not a thing that he has any judgment about. No, no, no. It's, he's there to solve a murder. Oh yeah, he's completely objective in the situ of, of the situation. He's it's just there, there's no data. Op- there's no opinion going through. Yeah, you know it, it, and it's it's an objectivity that you only see in the best detective performances like which is why i like i i know it sounded like a joke when i was comparing it to the other two but like if you were to compare uh, hubbard with a holmes or a poirot or anything like that i think it stands just as fine as any other like the fact that i don't have any like series of hubbard books with his own mysteries is you know frankly disappointing but you know that he it's because williams plays him to a degree that it's an affability that I would want to watch more of that. Oh, so much so. And in a world where, you know, we can make a movie out of anything, we can make a Cats movie. I want to see a Hubbard movie because because <laughs> and my response to anybody who tells me why is why not? Because <laughs> you seem to be trying everything else that isn't working. Yeah. Um, so but that's Margot's perfect answer to. Yeah. Why did you go into that side of the table? Why not? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Why would you stand? It is a. He is being serious, but it seems like the bitchiest question to come out of a policeman's mouth. Well, why would you stand right there? And it's like, 
Well, why would I not stand right here? <laughs> what about? Yeah, what What's you your after? fucking deal? <laughs> but he's answering. He's asking questions like a good cop. But it's pretty clear that they're going to have to go down to the station. And, um, you know, uh, Tony, with his um, rich, privileged nonsense, goes, well, I'm going to call a lawyer because I've heard of cops planting evidence. And I was just like, oh, 20, 20, 20. Um, <laughs> it's... If only these guys could see how the game has changed in their favor, they they wouldn't be bitching as much. <laughs> right. Um, but so they um, they go to the police station, and then we get this shot of, uh, which from a 3D point of view, anytime there's a single on somebody, it seems to really accentuate the character and not the background. Um, I speak mainly in certain medium medium close-ups to close-ups. But there is an individual shot that's very much an artistic situation to speed us through the to through the trial of Margot because eventually it's it's assumed that she did it and she's kind of railroaded via the justice system, mm-hmm. and it's a backdrop that goes from uh, a, a a a lighter red to a darker red and it kind of just starts getting a little bit more dire for her via the color coding. And, and there are a few lighting cue changes on her face. Yeah, well. and her and the shadows on her face change over, like it kind of goes over her. The more dire it gets, and so we, it's a three D shot that I think looks very interesting in three D, um, because it's it's not the it's not that it's flat, but it's the one moment where I feel like there's no depth, and yet I feel like it's adding something because she's popping out, mm-hmm. because she as a character is popping out. You know, watching it, the first time and especially the second time, is I wonder, I would love to pick uh, Richard Donner's brain to know if that was a um, an inspiration point for mm. um, the three Kryptonians for their trial. <laughs> and the floating heads and the guilty. Yeah. Is that, that sort of, that presentation and the the dark room and the floating heads yeah. is just like it was very reminiscent of that. Yeah. And it being a trial and yeah. that particular delivery of guilty. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and it, it, oh, yeah, you're right. Actually, I need to rewatch Superman. But it's that's Superman, true. Sorry, it, I never referenced what I was talking about. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's you no, know, it's interesting because it it is that like it's a blank space and you have Zod and his his buddies are pretty much just isolated in the black. They're consumed by black. And even in the following scenes, you know, when Brando's going like, listen, Lumine, the planet's going to explode. You know, it, it the, the, he is kind of like consumed in a black too. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you're right. No, that is, it's interesting how, and that's a technique technique that you still use in other films to this day. Um, my only question is, did, you know, did Hitchcock have a scene where he take, took off a cellophane S on something? Because that would be an interesting it, 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 like I, I've never seen any evidence of it. If anybody's seen Alfred Hitchcock's Superman, let me know, because sounds kinky as fuck. Anyway, um, the trial happens. She's found mm-hmm. guilty. She's going to be executed tomorrow. <laughs> so clearly time has passed. Yes. It's either that or this is the most efficient death penalty system that London's ever had. No, it's it's definitely been some time because yeah. we hear from Mark that the trial's gone on and an appeal. Yeah. So, yeah, this it's, is a time later. It's interesting from a modern perspective. We usually get a six months later. And here we kind of just naturally imply it. It's as if, though, we didn't need to be spoon fed. Then, anyway... <laughs> Um, but uh, Mark goes to visit um, uh, Tony, and Tony's pretty much over it. He's b- moved his bed out to the living room. Um, 
we see him bringing home a suitcase. Uh, when he hears that somebody's at the door, he hides that suitcase underneath a blanket. We start to see that his attache case. You know what we noticed right there from that moment on? Clearly, he thinks he's scot-free. He thinks he's got nothing to worry about. So he doesn't think he has to worry about saying anything. But what's interesting is, is that it's we have we've had this bomb under the table for so long of just like, we know he's guilty. When will anybody else find it out? And this is the moment where we start seeing how the pieces fit to how it'll be revealed in a satisfactory way that doesn't kill the kid on the bus, uh, metaphorically speaking. Um, Halliday tries to say, like, well, what if you lied for your wife and told the told the, the law that you were going to have her killed for her money? <laughs> Immediately, he's able to use this as a line of, well, nobody would believe that nonsense. Can you see the wink that's <laughs> going on? Clink, clink, clink. Yeah, exactly. So he's, and it's more out of the desperation of just like, look, I, I know we want to help her, wink, but it's not going to happen, wink. And so we just got to move on with our lives, wink, wink. Um, and so it feels like it's going to be a lost cause, but then the door rings again, and uh, they don't know who it is. So Mark kicks it to the bedroom to hide, cause, uh, and it's Hubbard. Hubbard's back to follow up on some shady spending that's been going on around town and that might have to do something with Tony. And over the course of everything, it's kind of revealed Tony's spending habits with the money that he was initially going to be paying Mr. Swan. Yes. Um, and, you know, Hubbard thinks he's got all the information. He doesn't think he needs to really follow up on this. And then he turns around and accepts, oh, by the way, there's an attache case missing. Were you missing an attache case? And he goes, yes, I was. And Mark Halliday sees the attache case in the bedroom that he's hiding in. He opens it up. There's 500 pounds in there, which is not what Tony has been saying. So then Mark just decides, well, fuck it. I'm not going to hide anymore here. I know this is what happened. They go through the whole plot. And still Tony is able to spin a web that could feasibly make him in the clear. And the only reason we know that that's not going to happen is because when Hubbard leaves and then Tony leaves, Hubbard comes back. And it all comes back to our key, which has been our MacGuffin this entire time. The key that was taken off of Swan was the one that was basically taken into, uh, was put back into um, Margot's purse. Yep. So that's the one that the cops have had. Hubbard uses this key to try to get in and tries to, you know, open the lock and it's not the one that works. So, you know, he says, okay, well, I'm sorry to bother you with this, Tony. He puts it back in his coat. They have the same looking coats. He switches coats, takes back the one that has the key that works, gets in that door and explains to Mark Halliday, look, I know the rich privilege fuck did it. <laughs> I finally figured it out <laughs> with my detective skills. You just have to prove it. So, and the finale, from the 3D point of view, we are kind of like allowed the most, I feel like it's the most camera movement because we are kind of moving from one end of the room to the other a lot more than we are in the other scenes. Sometimes we're mm -hmm. uh, going from one end of the room to the other. In this one, we're going room to room to room because we have to go to the window where the front door is. And it's the most that we're 
leaving the room within a single moment on screen. Because up until this point, the only time we really left this house or this flat is the uh, gentleman's club or the, you know, the social club where uh, Ray Milan's hanging out in during what's supposed to be the murder. Yes. Um, outside of that, we're going from the inside of the house to sort of the exterior of the back where the window, the back window is, and then outside of the door itself and looking outside yeah, I mean, uh, the, the front. The film is written as a stage play. Mm-hmm. It was originally a stage play. It was, I would be surprised if really much was changed, if there was even an adaptation or if the script just was the stage play. I think it was well, Frederick um, Knott's re, uh, adapting his own play. Right. He is the screenwriter. Right. So. But I mean, I'm, I just, I don't, I would be surprised if there was actually any like adaptation. No, you know? I, I don't think um, so. I mean, like, and there's a, you've seen the featurette too. Uh, and the featurette, you know, Bogdanovich talked to Hitchcock about like what it is like to adapt a play. And he's just like, you shoot the play because that's what the people came to see was the play. If you change that, you've taken away their reason for going. Right. And <laughs> Which so is fair. There's only really one, two sequences where it is quote unquote opened up where we get outside of the flat. Yeah. And one is at the boat when we see Mark arrive. Yeah. And the other is at the gentleman's club. Other than that, we're either in the front yeah. front stoop of the apartment or the apartment. And so what's happened is through the arrangement of Hubbard, Margo's released because I guess it's that easy to get out of death row if you've got that kind of a hunch, <laughs> but he's still got to prove that he did it with his little setup. So the, 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 uh, the London equivalent of the district attorney was very trusting in the fifties to be like, all right, I'll let grace the suspected murderer go <laughs> out on the streets for free, mm-hmm. but he's clearly testing out a theory. And then it's, it's, if not, then she's going back to the who's for electrocution. But so the way it plays out, mm-hmm. you get to see these 3d shots though, that are the quintessential, combination of Hitchcock and 3D to a certain extent because it not only uses the 3D, but it uses some good old Hitchcock process shots. Well, it's um, interesting if watching it the second time is that the finale of the film when Hubbard is staring at the front bedroom window and announcing what is going on outside Yep, is the only place where the adaptation of the stage play stood out to me mm-hmm. other than it being one location because it was so clear that in the stage play, we're not actually able to see the front stoop. So we have to describe it. So we need a narrator to describe, oh, this is what's going on, or this is who just arrived, and yeah. this is what he's doing, and oh, he's looking at this again. And here's and here's the thing. If you haven't watched the film prior to listening to this discussion, it is literally what Marshall is describing. He explains what anybody is doing outside. Uh, well, oh, actually, only Ray Milland. He doesn't do it with um, Margot. He doesn't describe Margot because he's trying to because he wants to make a little tiny surprise for Mark <laughs> because he says, like, you're going to you're right. going to you're going to be shocked for a minute, which doesn't, <laughs> doesn't play well for the film. No, because in the play, the surprise for Mark would be the surprise for the audience. As exactly. Well. But because we've seen out the front of the window because it's a film and not a play. Yeah. The surprise is ruined. For and, us. and from directing a play versus directing a film, the final moments where Tony. Basically makes himself culpable in the crime would look better suspense wise on, on the stage than it does on the film. However, I will say that even though he is saying stuff in his good old Hubbard fashion for his Hubbard novels, that'll come later down the line and be turned into a cartoon series. 
I think it the is, Hubbard novels are called Battlefield Earth. <laughs> or, uh, Mission Earth. Oh, oh, right? oh, his first name was Elrond, <laughs> wasn't it? <laughs> he was the... I just think of Dead Authors Podcast. First Commander of McDonald's. <laughs> but uh, the scene, though, where he is approaching the door and just the way it's edited and cut and he realizes, oh, I, the key is still under the stairs. That's because Swan left it there. And that's how there have been three keys circulating. These MacGuffins are very involving. Um, the tension is still drawn out, but it's not as effective as if he had taken out Hubbard talking. If we had made this another pure cinema sequence mm -hmm. where we're just hanging on the edge of our seat, it would have been drawn out better. It's one of the few times where I can look at a Hitchcock scene and go, that seems like Hitchcock didn't do what Hitchcock would do, which is interesting. Yeah. And it, yeah, a thing of really fun exercise would be to actually just take that. And all you need to do is take out Mark's dialogue of what's going on. Yeah. And then take out all of Hubbard's dialogue and you can you don't have to edit the film much other than that. And just to see how the end of plays would be kind of a fun experiment. Exactly. And it's I mean, like, you know, you want you you want a lot of the dialogue in this movie because it is priceless. Mm, but mm -hmm. that is a moment where it's not needed. Yep. Um, what is needed is what happens when, t t uh, to my mind, is when t Tony enters the flat and it's the gotcha moment. Talk about the ballsiest villain or murderer of all, of, of all time. He's been caught, and he says, Oh, I dare say I've been caught. Here, does anybody want some alcohol? <laughs> Why don't we all just get drunk? Oh, I, oh, yeah, Hubbard, you're still on the job. And talk about the balls on Ray Milland to be a, to, of, of that character, to just be like, Oh, I've been caught. Well, it's time to drink this whole bottle of whiskey because I, I, I'm fucked. I mean, a wife that I put through hell for several months, do you want to drink? How about you, writer, that I made made feel crazy for a good hot minute? <laughs> like, it's a great villain move. It is, and I think that again, it it speaks to this like fantastic complexity of Tony of the character of Tony, in that he's not ever 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 played as this like mustache twirling, like sinister psychopath. He's slick. He's um, a, he's urbane. He's an urbane sophisticate. And but he is the the sort of um, what's the word I'm looking for? The surrender at the end. Yeah. For me is a really kind of goes back and speaks to that idea of Tony, Tony trying to come to terms with or Tony running away from his life running out and from life, not going the way that he thought it was going to based on either his athleticism or his intellect. Mm -hmm. And so he's tried to manufacture this other perfect life. Yeah. And, it was through the manufacturing of this other perfect life that now he's actually going to be executed. Yeah. And his sort of just like, oh, I guess like that makes sense sort of approach to it is just very endearing um, to, to have that coming from a villain and a guy that we just watched go through all of this stuff through the whole film. It's weird. The moment he just he tries to be clever was the moment he'd be at he'd be at bringing upon his own downfall. Mm -hmm. It's amazing to to concede it that way, and I and you're right. It is a it is a situation where here's a guy who was basically based out of athleticism and just kind of following what seems like a good order of situations, and then we've been fucked over too much. He's just like, what if I change it up, and what if I'm clever about shit? <laughs> and then he's just suddenly just brought to brought brought down by his own 
but by his own hubris, essentially, which is, you know, a, a great story trope that transcends all ages. Yes. So he's brought down. He decides, you know, time to get crunk. And uh, Hubbard calls the police while combing his mustache. And that's the last frame of a Hitchcock 3D movie, other than the end title, which pops out at you in a very, uh, I think, I like that it's not so in your face 3D titles. I, I like, because House of Wax throws it in your face. Yeah. This one's kind of just like, no, they're just going to be right there. They're hovering around. Hey, when the, in the opening one, I'll even make the M in the background so you can have a little fun with that, huh? Hitchcock's kind of lame when it comes to having fun with this, but here <laughs> you go. So. We have Dial In for Murder, a film that really, it's funny, it's seeing is believing with this film because we're what we're describing could be any Hitchcock movie. Zach, I was so excited for you to see this film in 3D. Yeah. Like, because I, I had not seen it before uh, watching it in preparation for this podcast. Yeah. And I watched it and was absolutely blown away yeah. by just it was very similar to my avatar experience about just being like this is actually a completely different film in 2d yep it actually is a different film which so you're telling me you have not seen it in 2d at all no okay um i won't put you through that because you have the ability to watch it the proper way whenever you want <laughs> i don't so i'm gonna talk a little bit about it um the, the biggest issue that i have with the 2d version of this which you can get for on dvd and even if you watch it in 2d this is still a good movie it's a good hitchcock movie the 3d makes it great because of what it's adding to an otherwise uh bland what could be otherwise considered bland or just kind of like it's there. Yeah, if if you have any experience watching previous adaptations of stage plays into film, um, the two D version is a like a, maybe a six out of ten version of that. It's, yeah, it's very clearly this is one stage play, and we're watching or this one 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 scene. That's the word I'm looking for. It, it's one weird. location. It's it's like telling me there's a version of Rope that's not a bunch of long takes. Right. That's kind of what it is. Right. That's right. what the 2D version of this it's, movie is. And it's is. like, yeah, you can also watch Wizard of Oz in black and white. That's that's a thing <laughs> the, that you the, can do. That, um, wait, who who the fuck's doing that, Marshall? <laughs> and why do I have to hurt them? <laughs> people with their color tubes broken on their TVs. <laughs> oh, I guess back in the old whatever. day. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but I mean, I, that's yeah, got to be a lame existence, by the way, watching Wizard of Oz in black and white all the way through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's I mean, yeah, I think that this the the film plays. It's a it's a tight tight script. Yeah. It's really well written and it works. It is something else. It is a different experience in 3D. Exactly. And to tell you a little bit about what you experience. Now, I saw the DVD copy. There is a Blu-ray copy that is 2D. Um you can find the 3D version available um through Amazon. Um there are foreign versions too if you're having a hard time finding the US release. Uh, most things are multi-region at this point. So it's all Warner Brothers. Yeah. Razor multi-region. So there you go. Thank so you, you already Warner have Brothers. that option. So then the, the 2d version on DVD at the very least, I, I watched it on my 4k TV and that obviously is a little tainted to begin with, but I also put it on the computer. Um, the biggest thing is, is that it's, it seems like it's overly bright or colors are being pushed out and it, it loses some dimension that, it, that, that is deserved from that film. Yeah. There's a new transfer done, I think in 2013. Yes. There was the one done in 2013. Um, and there is, uh, uh, there was a, 
because uh, it was shown in uh, some UK cinemas uh, during the summer of 2013. So there was a new version that got done, and Warner Brothers released their 3D version in two, 2012, their first one. Um, but the biggest thing is is that certain shots work well in 3D because of the way they were set up with that camera, amongst them of which is the shot of Swan approaching the house the night of the murder. When you watch it in the 2D print... His figure approaching is blending too much with a background that is crush black. Mm. In the 3D print that we watched, you can see his outline. You are clear that there are two figures in the frame. In the 2D version, it feels like they're melding way too much together and it distracts. It's almost like it's a shot that couldn't be rescued in a restoration. So the technology with 3D at that time, you know, the film stock is going to work differently than it's going to for a 2D process. This film was shot for 3D, but you can make a 2D print out of that. Right, you would just use one of the so you, from the camera. So you're automatically missing one of the elements when you have to just use the when you're making the flat version. And there was something, I started to read on it, and then it got a little bit over my head in terms of the photo, uh, the photo processing process. Yeah. Um, but that any time there was a um, – definitely any time there was an optical done, so any fade to black or fade from one scene to another. Um, and for some reason also with whatever process they used for this film, any time there was also a projection. And it may have actually been not rear projection is probably what caused this. Yeah. Um, the there, Even in 1954, it looked like that. Yeah. It looked – like the image is broken down a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's the detail is gone. There seems to be like these weird halos as if they used a ton of um, noise reduction right. um, or sharpening. And that's actually not what it was. Like I read that that's actually the way that it looked in 1954 the first time. And that's just because of this particular way that they worked with opticals oh, and, and the anytime okay. that you're dealing with the backgrounds. It's weird because I felt, uh, I mean, and I'll take your word on that. Cause like what, but when I was watching the 3d print today, that particular shot looked a lot clearer than it did. And I don't know if that's because I am seeing both of the elements at play and not to mention the fact that it's not blowing up stuff, blowing out stuff. Right. It's very similar to how, um, this might not make a lot of sense, but uh, Halloween had a couple different transfers done uh, within the last couple of years. <laughs> yes, one of which Very was approved by did. yeah, yes. by one of them approved by Dean Cundey, where they changed the color a lot. Now I've I have the 4K version and the Blu-ray version. Blu-ray version is closer to what we grew up with, which is just you know it's kind of like a got an orange hue to it, and there's like colors pushing out. The 4K transfer is a much more naturalized process. So I'm wondering if it's just that because I have this DVD cut, that's the version I'm getting. Because what I saw today on this screen looks way more effective for what it's going for. And the lighting works well with it when it doesn't feel like things are just a little too overly lit um, in the 2D version. So, Hmm. um, And it could also be because you're putting glasses on, you have an extra thing in front of your face too. So... Um, but it, as we've talked about, it's not supposed to affect that completely. So, yeah. Um, but at any rate, this film is released and it gets fine reception. Um, you know, it, it, the the this is from the Philadelphia Inquirer and they reported the first audiences proved to be a jury that could not only make up its mind, 
but could make it up in a make it up in a hurry. In exhibitor's own terms, Dial M literally died, and after just four performances on Wednesday, some long distance telephoning to report complaints, increasing skimpiness of customers, a good many of them making no bones of their dissatisfaction. Permission was given to throw away the glasses and hastily switch to the 2D version, whereupon business at the Randolph took a turn for the better. Ooh. Ouch. Damn it, Philly. You you burn cold. You you burn. You burn hard. So, yeah, the 3D was not um, the, the, the main attraction. However, uh, the film itself... Uh, has did get favorable reviews. Bosley Crowther of the New York Times, my favorite guy to love slash hate slash terrible. <laughs> um, he said, this is a technical triumph that Hitchcock has achieved. Uh, it is one for which he needed good actors. He has them. And the best of the lot is John Williams, late of the stage play, who is the detective who solves the sinister ruse. So even Bosley Crowther, who I hate, knew that John Williams was our guy. <laughs> he knew that we should have some Hubbard detective novels. He fucking knew it. Um, uh, and, you know, some people didn't like it. Richard Coe at the Washington Post said it's completely choice. Um, and uh, he had a field day with camera angles. And, you know, people are pretty much positive about this. But the bottom line is, is that it's not as successful as what would come later that year yep. in the form of Rear Window. Wouldn't even touch it by comparison. And frankly, as sad, it's sad to say this because I've had really a lot of fun talking about this film. Rear Window is a great movie. This one's just as good. It's just you've got to watch it a certain way. You you have to do it. And I'm, I am not one to tell people, watch this in this format or you're unpatriotic to <laughs> movies. <laughs> But uh, I will say that if you are wondering why this film isn't – if you're feeling like this film is missing something, try to find a way to watch this in 3D. And it's kind of hard because they don't really make 3D TVs anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's not like the people who listen to the show have the readily in- ready income available to have <laughs> what you have um, with this setup. But And I know that this was built up over a period of years, so this isn't an overnight thing. But you know, if you find it at a cinema that is shown – for God's sake, seek it out. Yep. Because they do show this every so often in retrospectives. And if you, heck, if you're listening to this in LA, demand that one of your rep theaters show it. Because you got like tons of them out there. I know the Grauman's out there. You guys can get that done. Amen. The Arrow Theater, the Egyptian, get it fucking done. Yep. <laughs> so yeah. So that I can fly out and watch it. <laughs> yeah, I think that this is, I don't know. I have not seen this film in 2D, but I. Don't I, want to, but I, I feel like <laughs> watching this film in 2D would be not dissimilar to watching Argento's Suspiria in black and white or mm. a uh, Del, uh, Guillermo del Toro film in black and white. Just like the amount of work that he goes into storytelling, yeah. being a part of the color and taking that element of the film away is like is it still going to sound as great yes is it still going to be as crisp is the acting all still going to be there yes 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 absolutely across the board or even a mad max fairy road like i like the black and chrome edition but the colors in that film are 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 beautifully designed and just interesting that you bring that movie up yeah that movie was also filmed in 3d and if you have not seen it in 3d you must and if you haven't (laughs) seen mad max fairy road the fuck's your problem (laughs) at least watch it in flat i don't care if you watch it in flat 
Just watch it. It's yeah, it's it's brilliant. They go from they go to one place and then they have to go back the way they came. It's, it's great. It's great. Um, but yeah, it's, it's and it's just, also like watching the mist in color, which is which is a reverse because it was released in color, but it's supposed to be black and white. Right. You watch the mist in black and white. The effect Darabont's work is there. Mm-hmm. Watch it in color is kind of lame, but <laughs> uh, yeah. <coughs> but so this film kind of dies. Dies a death 3D wise. It's revived in the 80s. And, you know, people like Marty Scorsese and uh, Peter Bogdanovich get to see it. I mean, Bogdanovich saw it in its earlier release. But people get to re-see this and they get to see what we're seeing today. So we're, we're, I'm just saying we're an extension of Martin Scorsese and Peter Bogdanovich. And I'm just saying, get thicker glasses and I'll get an ascot. And we'll <laughs> make this happen. No, but um, it, but this is a legacy of just passing on the knowledge of just like this, how this technology can work, and how it should be utilized. And you know, I don't think we've seen the end of 3D. I really don't think we have. There's there no there's no reason to have death um, is but a door. It'll be back. That's it. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. There's no reason to. And I actually, I have an interesting here little quote. Yeah. Um, this is a blurb from a Warner Brothers um leaflet talking about. 3D and what does 3D mean to Hollywood? And, and they, this would have been their press release for the for the film Dial in for Murder. Uh, this actually was before Dial in for Murder. Mm. Um, oh, promoting the technology at large. Yeah, promoting the technology at large. So they talked to a star, Diana Lynn. They talked to a director, Mr. Hitchcock. Yeah. And to a producer, one Alex Gottlieb. And here's what mm-hmm. Mr. Hitchcock had to say about it. He says, as far as I'm concerned, there'll have to be a lot more changes when you're working with 3D. The close-up, for instance, will have to be scrapped completely. Can you imagine two normal-sized heads on that big screen? They'd look like monsters. In that respect, 3D will be more like a stage play. But when you're showing it, uh, but when you're showing a lot of people at once, 3D will be very effective. If the whole movie industry goes the way of 3D, there will be a lot more panoramic films and a lot less intimate stories. It will be marvelous, though, for tricks like squirting water out into the audience. And I think 3D will be best when a movie is planned around these tricks instead of trying to fit them into a movie. I'd like to have a movie start this way. The screen is dark. There is no sound. All of a sudden, a large hand with extra long fingers reaches out and takes the audience by the throat. Think that would frighten you? Damn. He would have... Oh, Psycho would have been fun in 3D. Can you <laughs> imagine? That would have been fun, having that knife coming at you. <laughs> we never would have seen it. That never would have made it by... Oh, no, by no, no. The, no, no the, if that was in 3D. Oh, yeah, no. They would have just been like, look... We we were able to go with this as far as we could, but this is the line. Why not? It'll be fun. They, they'll be terrified as fuck. Listen, no, no, come back. Come back. <laughs> Let me tell you more. I think that's a great way, actually, to cap off this episode is talking about what the potential of this technology can do uh, and how it shouldn't be overlooked. And, you know, if you have the ability to see a 3D movie that was shot in 3D and you can look up the information for upcoming releases, um, uh, you know, IMAX 3D... Uh, if it's certified IMAX 3D, generally I've been led to believe like if it's done it, if it's been certified by them, it's it was shot on that format, so it is true 3D. Whether well, it's used correctly is con- conversion actually has come a very long way. And yeah. if a studio is willing to put the full 12 week conversion process into play in post production and time their release for that, then it can be amazing. And the aforementioned Pacific Rim by Guillermo del Toro, he originally wanted to shoot that in 3D. Yeah, but because of the limitations of the technology and the size of the camera, he couldn't do what he wanted to do, and so he wanted to do a post conversion, mm-hmm. and he refused 
to do any 3D at all unless uh, Warner Brothers signed off on committing to doing the full 12-week post-conversion, which they did, which is why that movie is flawless in 3D. Coincidentally, this is also why they told me I could not make the sequel. (laughs) So I made the fish movie. Yes. I am Guillermo. I love Guillermo. He's an awesome teddy bear. I love him. Yes. Um, But that's going to wrap it up for this Shamley silhouette, which is, you know, proven to be a very eye-popping experience, not not a pun necessarily on what we've been discussing, but very eye-popping to people who don't think about 3D beyond the fact that it's a $3 surcharge on your movie ticket. Yeah. Which I think has been the biggest hurdle that 3d has had to overcome within the current era right yeah i think that there are some some particular transformative experiences that i've had in in 3d um i would say ant-man in 3d mm-hmm. um is, was particularly well done dr strange was done yeah um i think one of the hands down like quintessential you must see in 3d films is cave of forgotten dreams by Werner herzog oh you, um, you mean my movie <laughs> yes I, i'm planning a post-conversion on grizzly man <laughs> And so then you cannot listen to the tape Most in 3D. Most of us see life in 3D, so why not see movies in 3D? By, by the way, watch The Mandalorian on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> he's got to make money. He's got to yeah, yeah. go out there so he can go do more crazy docs that he's going to narrate and I'll love. I'm all a fan. Dude, Grizzly Man's a... I'll need to t- when we're done with Mike, I'll tell you my Grizzly Man story. Right. Uh, but that's going to be it for this week on Shamley Silhouette. Marshall, thank you again. Zach, we've got nothing but a pleasure. We've got one more for you, and it'll probably be the big finale. Um, and for the uh, for anybody who has been keeping up with the series, um, the release is going to be coming out as it possibly can because I I'm trying to fit it in between a lot of things coming up in my schedule. But we are going to make this as consistent as we possibly can. Um, you can check us out on realnerdspodcast.com. And you can look for the episodes that are coming out at the very least once a month, if not twice uh, a month. Um, The articles are going to take a bit of a sidestep because of things that have come up. I will promise to get those done at a certain point in a complete fashion. And maybe they'll reflect the changes that have been happening throughout the show, too, and how my opinion on Hitchcock has evolved. Um, Kind of the way that Clint Eastwood one did, where, you know, I learned things about my love of Clint Eastwood that have limited that love. <laughs> um, but, uh, and then on the next episode, um, I believe I'm going to visit an old, old friend to talk about something we've talked about before on the show, but in greater detail, you haven't heard this man on the family silhouette before. Uh, but y- when you hear his lovable big voice, you will just fall in love with him the way he fell in love. That way we all fell in love with him. You know who I'm talking about. We can't reveal it yet, but you know, who I I'm do. Talking about. And you will enjoy it thoroughly. You will have some fun with this, but until then this has been the family silhouette. Good night.